Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 76 of X-Lapsed, where I can't shake the feeling like I've got a frog in my throat here. I've been trying to drink as much as I can to uh, try to straighten this all out, but uh, apologies if I sound a little froggy at some points during this episode. I'm not getting sick again, from what I can tell, but uh, I don't know. I feel like i got to constantly clear my throat, which I will spare you from as best as possible. And as always, we'll endeavor to do our best. But today, we're going to be talking about New Mutants, Volume 4, Number 10. This had a June 2020 cover date, and our story is called Parasomnia, which uh, I actually researched to find out what in the world Parasomnia is. And apparently it's a sleep disorder that causes abnormal behavior while sleeping. Things like talking, moving around, it's to the point where other people who are around you might think you're actually awake, but... You're really asleep. So I'm guessing that these behaviors extend to uh, warping reality. I guess we'll find out. Now, this issue is written by Ed Brisson with art by Flaviano or Flaviano. Colors, Carlos Lopez. Letters, VCs, Travis Lanham. Designs, Tom Muller. Head of X is Hickman. Edits, Bisa white Sabolski. Cover price, $3.99. And went on sale June 10th of 2020. So this is another one of those issues from the post uh, well, I wouldn't say post-pandemic since it ain't over yet, but, uh, you know, that, that, that two-month span where there were no comics. This is coming off the heels of that. So we have a cover date and an on-sale date that are both in June again. Um, now, this is a cover. Uh, this cover is both, like, spectacular and horrifying here. It's uh, our, you know, new mutant here, our new new mutant from, uh, uh, was it, Carnelia, Russia, uh, Tashi Rapina, the girl with the braces here, and we see this big close-up on her face and her mouth, and, you know, where, like, the brackets on the teeth are from the braces. Instead of there being actual brackets, it's actually new mutant heads. So, uh, we get to see all of our favorites there as brackets on braces on a very horrifying face here. It's really well done. <laughs> it's a really well done cover. It's just one of those things that, it's like, ugh, kind of weird. Anyway, we open, and we are right there with our reality-warping new friend, Tashi Rapina. And, uh, of course, she is the girl with the braces and the weird right eye. Now, she's begging for forgiveness inside her inky black warp bubble thing. And those with her are uh, Karma, Chamber, Magma, and a couple of Russian security guard soldiers. They're there mimicking her. So, basically, everything she's saying, they're saying as well. And this is actually a really cool way of depicting such a strange scene here. It's just like what she's saying is reverberating through all of those within her, you know, sphere of influence. Your literal sphere of influence. Really, really well done. I liked it. 
Next, we go right to our roll call, where we go over our cast of characters, and the folks we'll be focusing on today are Boom Boom, Chamber, Magma, Mirage, Karma, Cypher, Mondo, Armor, Wolfsbane, Wildside, Glob, and Magic. From here, our customary double-page spread of creds. Then back to comics, and we're back outside. Boom Boom accidentally steps in some of this reality-warping goop... And uh, she and Danny note that this uh, odd and, of course, literal sphere of influence is spreading, and uh, potentially spreading rapidly. And this will put a nearby apartment building in very, very severe danger before long. Now, the Russian... I don't know if they're soldiers, if they're rent-a-cops, whatever they are. These Russian folks, or these Carnelian folks, uh, they don't appear to be all that interested in helping out. Um, In fact, the only reason they're letting the New Mutants get as close as they are is because they're hoping that the warp bubble actually swallows them up. So, you know, I guess it's a, one of them good news, bad news situations. Uh, Danny asked Tabitha to try to talk reason with the Russians in Russian, since Tabitha showed us she could do that last issue. Before she can, however, the cavalry arrives, and it's uh, Doug, Mondo, Rain, Armor, and, of course, Wildside. Boom Boom is quite displeased to see Wildside, and she calls him uh, Clowny McWolverine Light. Which, uh, I know I've been giving Tabitha a hard time over the past few issues, but uh, this is fair, (laughs) you know. Uh, I know I probably compared him to Wolverine back in the day, too, just because of his, you know, Wolverine-y hairdo. Uh, Then again, I also compared Feral, Beast, and Matsuo Tsuraba to Wolverine for the very same reason. In fairness to me, I was 11, so there you go. (laughs) Now, while the New Mutants try to put a plan together... We shift scenes to the Pershy Palace, which is the home of the Prime Minister Prokopovich, Prokopovich of Carnelia. I think I might have gotten that right one of those times, but I wouldn't bet on it. Now, he's stirred awake by some of his handlers in order to deal with some media and public relations due to this weird incident. And so he gets up, he curses the mutants, and he heads off to make himself presentable. We head back to Krakoa, where a couple of things are bubbling. One of those things is a subplot we're headed toward, and the other is some vegetarian laksa. We meet up with Glob, who is gathering eggs from his little chicken coop. Uh, Magic saunters up to talk with him about the Pilger incident on the Bohusk farm from a few issues back. She wants to know how those cartellis knew that there were mutants there. Glob talks about, well, our favorite online rag... Docs, which he refers to as either Mutant Docs, Muty Docs, or Doxwall Mutants. Uh, we know what he's talking about, though, right? Now, Magic is beyond ticked off that Docs, this Doc site would, you know, dox the mutants by publishing their addresses online. You know, knowing that they're putting these mutants in danger. Glob offers Magic some laksa. From here, we go to an info page, and it's a recipe for Glob's vegetarian laksa. Oddly, and maybe not oddly, I don't know a whole lot about vegetarianism, but it includes eggs. Which always mystified me why eggs can be included in a vegetarian diet. I, I guess it would be like a vegan thing to leave them out, but still, I, I just don't get it. <laughs> I don't understand why I think of eggs as, as meat, in a way. I, I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Anyway, if you want to make Glob's vegetarian laksa, more power to you. I see this is kind of a waste of a page. It's a little cute, maybe a little too cute, but we'll move on. We jump back to comics and we're back on Carnelia, or Carneria, whatever, wherever we are. Doug is analyzing this inky warp balloon and he finds it fascinating. To which Danny asks if you, you know, maybe don't fall in love with it. And that's not cool. I mean, this dude just traveled halfway around the world to save your ass. So maybe, 
maybe just give the guy a minute. Uh, Doug deduces that everything swirling around inside the bubble, they are the dreams of this little girl, Tashi Rapina. Well, nightmares, actually. Boom Boom tells Cypher to stop Doug-splaining, <clears throat> which makes me want to see her dropped into a volcano. She then suggests that she just toss a time bomb into the bubble. When did Tabitha become such an asshole? Uh, is this more of the next wave effect? Because I don't like this. Anyway, Doug lays out a plan. Now, since this bubble is the result of Tashi trying to make sense of her nightmares, he suggests that maybe they try to get close enough to her inside the bubble in order to give her good dreams, which is probably where Wildside will come into play. But the question is, how are they going to do this? Well, Danny has an idea, and she asked the group if they'd ever seen the movie Poltergeist. I have not, although that, you know, is probably not a surprise to many of you listening. I do, however, remember the commercials for uh, Poltergeist scaring the bejesus out of me as a little kid, though. It's like, you know, there's a TV in most rooms in your house, or the most rooms that you congregate in your house, and then to <laughs> to know that, you know, the, the, the TV was where the bad things were is uh, it's a scary thing for a kid. Anyway, while Danny puts her gimmick in place, the Prime Minister arrives on the scene to make a statement on live television. Now, he suggests that this entire thing is just a stunt planned by the Krakoans as a result of Carnelia declining to sign the treaty. And you know, that's a good and reasonable enough angle. I think that enough people would buy that. Now, he suggests that the New Mutants are here to quote-unquote fix a situation that they created in the first place to get some good PR, and also to show the Carnelian people that, you know, the mutants are needed. So again, reasonable. He then orders the New Mutants to be arrested. We'll see how that works. From here, it's an info page, and it's from the Docs website. They're reporting that mutants are in Carnelia, and that the Prime Minister has issued an arrest warrant. Interestingly enough, there's also a call to arms to Carnelians to forward all of their mutant footage to the Docs site. So, uh, any Carnelian citizens who happen to be boots on the floor or happen to be in the area, get some footage, send it into Docs. I'm, I'm really liking this subplot. It's, it's really cool. Uh, back to comics, and Danny is about to enact her poltergeist plan. And to do so, she has affixed a long strap to armor, like around her waist. And then armor has, you know, erected her armor bubble, which has encased herself, Doug, Mondo, and Wildside. Now together, they're going to enter this inky warp balloon while Danny holds the other end of this strap. You know, so she can maybe yank them out if they get into trouble. Because how are you going to get them out otherwise? Now, Armor and company, they enter, and immediately cannot see their way back out, which is moderately concerning. We then get a weird two-page spread that gives us a sort of kind of tour of this reality warp bubble, and it's pretty neat. Uh, the, teen the team ultimately gets close enough to Tashi to maybe reach out to her, so Wildside is going to be the man on point here. He needs to reach out to her without letting any of the inky, reality-warped atmosphere in. And so, he goes to touch her. Which really freaks her out. In fairness to Tashi, w w would you want Wildside touching you? I, I don't think so. Anyway, the inky stuff seeps into Armor's armor. Uh, Doug is sure that Danny will feel the struggling and decide to yoink them out. Unfortunately for them, it would seem that the strap snapped and they be trapped. We wrap up with Hisako being greeted by her dead parents, and we are to be continued. 
Next episode, welcome to the Double Digits, X-Force number 10. So what is there to say about this issue? Um, not a whole lot. Not a whole lot. I enjoyed it. Um, but it's... You know, I'm trying to reframe the way I'm looking at these books here because I feel like maybe... Maybe I've been a little unfair uh, over the past several episodes here where I might be expecting a little bit too much from these books. And I think the way that I'm doing this might actually... It's not benefiting anyone, myself especially, I suppose, since it's mostly affecting me for having to try to analyze these books. And and I'm thinking back to like the last issue of Marauders that we talked about that I, I really didn't come away from enjoying quite as much as I, I've enjoyed other issues. Um, Excalibur was okay. Uh, this was similarly okay. Um... I would say that had I read these just in like a, just as a regular afternoon read, you know, without any sort of designs on talking about it or trying to make any sort of, you know, half-assed analysis of it, I'd probably enjoy it a whole lot more than I did. So I might be doing the books a disservice by doing this the way I am. Um, even thinking back to X-Men number nine, which... <laughs> I really thought I was going to wrap that episode up by saying, hey, maybe this is done, <laughs> you know, because I shouldn't come away from this, from recording an episode with such negativity. And I had plenty of negativity with X-Men number nine. I really thought that like, okay, this might be it. <laughs> this might be done. So with New Mutants number 10 here, it was a good enough issue. Um, you know, Jason might have said it best when he said that uh, Hoxpox had set us up for the extraordinary, right? And Docs is not really giving us that every time out. And, and it couldn't. I mean, it couldn't possibly, right? We're at episode 76, so we've read, what, 64 of these Docs books? You know, taking out the 12 Hoxpox issues? So we're at like 64 issues into this uh, Dawn of X line. They can't all be, you know, just huge, massive successes. We do need bridging issues. We do need arcs to build things on. And this, this is one of those arcs. And I really can't hold that against it. That said, I enjoyed it. I thought it was a lot better than last issue. Though I still am really over the, the way Boom Boom's being uh, depicted here. I think she is really, really awful. Uh, but uh, everything else worked for me. I, I liked uh, I liked the plan uh, with Danny's uh, poltergeist gimmick, getting her friends into the inky balloon to try to try to uh, rescue their friends and uh, and maybe fix Tashi a little bit. I thought that was a cool idea. I like the idea of um, of Docs. Docs, I think, is going to be a really, really fun concept to uh, to be explored and, and mined over the next several issues. I think that there's a lot of meat on that bone, and uh, I'd like to find out who's behind it. I think that might be a very interesting reveal. Hopefully, I'm not setting myself up for a disappointment, but I like the idea of it uh, because it's something you could totally see happening. Uh, right now, things like social media and the Internet, they're, they're ubiquitous. You know, uh, how many people do you know who don't have a smartphone in their pocket at all times? How many people do you know who aren't constantly taking pictures? 
uh, with their phones and taking pictures of themselves, taking pictures of where they're at, taking pictures of their, you know, the plate on their table. It's just what society's become. And now we have this Docs magazine that's like, hey, you you can be part of this too. You know, you're taking pictures anyway, just send them to us. And it's all in the name of uh, doxing and outing the mutants of the world. I think this is, if if anything, this is what I'm looking forward to uh, seeing how it plays out. Whereas this issue here in Carnelia, it was decent enough. I like the uh, Prime Minister playing with the propaganda and playing with the PR to to make it look as though this is all a ruse. You know, they're... they're there is no problem here. This is something that the Krakoan mutants had planned and placed in order to you know, in, inspire fear and a need for them in, Carn- in Carnelia. I like that. I like that a lot. Um, so yeah, outside of the way um, Tabitha was portrayed, I really don't have any complaints about this issue. I, I think Flaviano did a great job here. Everybody looked awesome. Uh, the the surreality of the inky bubble looked great. It was really really cool. Um, had a bunch of like weird stuff that you might picture in a kid's brain. You know, like this candy in there. There's a whole bunch of just like weird stuff, and it. it was really cool. Don't know that I'm too interested in the cliffhanger with Hizako seeing her parents. Eh, I mean, that's. <laughs> I don't think that has a- any real oomph to it, but. It'll get us to where we need to be, so that's okay. So, yeah, not a whole heck of a lot to say about this one. It was just another issue. It was an issue I enjoyed. It's probably not going to rock everybody's socks, but uh, it's an enjoyable little diversion, and it was a decent enough issue of the post-Hickman New Mutants. So I'd give it a net positive, and, uh, I mean, if you're interested in seeing how the New Mutants are being treated after Hickman left, this is a fine place to go. You know, so this is not bad at all. If you, and like I said, if you're reading these, if you're reading 9 and 10 back-to-back uh, without having to stop to write a 20-page script about each one, you're probably going to like it a whole lot more than, than I made it the first issue sound. So there's that. <laughs> That's everything I have to say about New Mutants number 10. Let's dip into the mailbag here because we got quite a bit to discuss. We're going to start with Damien. And this is regarding Giant Size X-Men Nightcrawler number one. He says, It's time for me to come and disagree with everything you said. Actually, that's not true. We agree that this comic should not be described as a Nightcrawler comic. He's barely involved. We also agree that this book looks amazing. It's so wonderful to see Alan Davis inking his own stuff. I don't think I've seen him do that since the New Mutants annual that introduced Psylocke many decades ago. And yes... So far, we are on the same page here. This is not a Nightcrawler comic, and Alan Davis's work looked fairly spectacular here. It was very, very good. Very, very good. Uh, Damien continues. Lockheed's appearance is a continuity gaffe. When I first read this issue, I thought it was fine, as we saw Lockheed heading to Krakoa in the last issue of Marauders. I assumed his arrival was off-panel, and in absence of Kitty, he'd pair up with Kurt and Ilyana. Sadly, the next issue of Marauders shows his return, so I lose by no prize. I was glad to see him here, though, as he was a key element in the best-remembered Sidri Hunter story. They would definitely consider him a threat. Generally speaking, this was a positive for me. The issues with this story were editorial, but it was a fun one-and-done. And And I don't remember anything with the Sidri, so 
<laughs> for all I knew, uh, this was the first time we were seeing them. Uh, so I didn't know anything about that. But I think my problem is the same as yours here, is in that um, it's definitely more editorial than anything. I feel like, you know, and I've, I've made this observation about comics fandom, and actually any sort of hobby fandom, we're a little too close to the pros now, and we know how the sausage is made, and um, I get kind of hung up on worrying about things that'll only serve to lessen my enjoyment of a story. These are Chris problems, you know, totally. I just see all these editors, and a head of X credited on all of these books, and I have this Maybe it's a Pollyanna-ish, pie-in-the-sky hope that the stories we're getting are being delivered in a more linear fashion. It feels like just another way that they're disrespecting the week-to-week reader. Um, And, you know, it doesn't all fall on them. I'm pretty disappointed how we've all just come to expect our stories to happen out of sequence. We're cool with it now. Um, Back in the long ago... Something like this would have been called out far and wide. There'd be letters pages dedicated to why Lockheed showed up here before he actually came back. X-Fans would try to make sense of it, and now we just accept it. And many of us will, like, continue to rate it a 10 out of 10, (laughs) you know? I, I don't know what happened to the fandom here where this sort of sloppy work... And, I mean, the story was fine. The editorial is sloppy, and we just let it happen. And, uh, I don't know. It's, it's a little disappointing. Uh, Damien continues. Great to hear Andrew agreeing with my reading of the Cyclops and Wolverine scene. I definitely agree with him that Havoc and Wolverine are a better team. In fact, Meltdown is sat near the top of my rereading pile at the moment. There is some fun stuff coming with Havoc and Hellions, but there's no bonding with Wolverine. And yeah, you know, that Cyclops-Wolverine scene from X-Men number 7 turned out to be such... So much nothing, right? Um, I still remember the day Bleeding Cool or whatever horrible comics news site first shared these panels because it was very, very strange because I had friends on social media who I hadn't heard from in months who were suddenly reaching out to ask me about this. And it's like, have you heard about this? What's going on with this? Is, Is this what they're doing now? And, you know, the overwhelming tone, it wasn't anger, you know, which... I'm pretty sure disappointed the news hacks, but uh, it was more of like a collective eye-rolling, you know? Um, It was just like, oh, it's Marvel, (laughs) and Marvel's marveling again. Um, And, you know, Meltdown is interesting, because I don't know that I've ever actually read it. Uh, I've got it sitting on my shelf, like right behind me right now, but I can't remember if I've actually read it. I do know... For a fact that I did read the Havoc and Wolverine team-up trading card from Marvel Universe Series 3 like several dozen times, which made me particularly excited to read the story itself, I just can't recall if I ever did. I don't know. Maybe one of these days I'll have to find out. Uh, Damien continues with, I love the way you're so diplomatic about runs you don't like. I wish I could be as fair-minded about the Whedon run. I only read the first trade, but I thought it was horrible. It was infected by a bad case of Jeff Johnsitis in that he was desperately trying to reset the book to a previous version that he was nostalgic for. I don't care that he did it well, as it was a backwards move. And you know me. When I have an opinion that conflicts with anyone else, the mainstream, just anybody, I automatically assume that I'm wrong. <laughs> now, that said, one of my least liked phrases, which I hear and see more than more often than I'd like to, is... 
I think we can all agree, dot, dot, dot. And it's usually followed by something that, sure, an echo chamber will agree with, but you should never assume that everyone will agree. And that's something that I try to keep in mind to keep me from making sweeping statements and generalizations. Even something as reviled as the Chuck Austin run, or, hey, Major X, (laughs) I, I try to keep my opinions clearly labeled as opinions. I never try to assume that my opinion is the popular one or the only one. Now, the Whedon run, for me, that might, that might have been a bit of a tainted well for me due to, you know, stop me if you heard this one before, lousy or absentee editorial. <laughs> you know, just kind of like I've been complaining about, about the uh, giant size Nightcrawler here. One thing about the Whedon run, before a single issue came out, that got stuck in my craw was that Marvel and Joe Quesada started walking back some of their positions. Most notably, and for folks who were fans of Marvel Comics around the turn of the century, there was one that they felt very, 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 very strongly about that was called Dead is Dead. Which is to say, hey writers, if you're going to engage in stunt writing, if you're just going to kill long-standing and beloved characters... Well, you're not going to be bringing them back, so make sure you're done with them. You know, uh, once they're dead, they are dead. So maybe, maybe don't be stunt writers. Maybe tell stories instead. So a couple of notable X-deaths from the turn of the century were Psylocke, the Betsy Braddock version, in Extreme X-Men, and Colossus, who sacrificed himself to cure the legacy virus. Now, Chris Claremont intended on Psylocke's death being short-lived. No pun intended, I guess. Joe Casada said, no, dead is dead. Grant Morrison intended on using Colossus during his run on New X-Men. Casada said, no, dead is dead, which led to Emma Frost getting her diamond-hard skin secondary mutation. Then, the Buffy guy wanders in and decides he wants to slum it in comics and he wants to rekindle the Kitty Colossus romance. Joe Casada says, sure, no problem. Eh, because, well, he's a star effer, and he was mad at Morrison for heading back across the street to D.C. So, yeah, I was already annoyed at the Whedon run before I read a single page of it. Is that unfair? Yeah. Do I owe it another try? Maybe. Will I ever get around to it? I don't know. <laughs> so, you, you know, if one day you all wake up and see an episode of Astonishing X Lapsed in your feeds, well, then you'll know. Uh, now... I think there's definitely a place in comics for the Jeff Johns-itis. So long as it makes sense and it doesn't just absolutely crap on everything that came before it that the writer didn't agree with. I feel like Johns himself had a pretty good handle on that when he wanted to. Of course, you know, uh, pushing legacy characters like Kyle Rayner and Wally West into irrelevance aside, of course, uh, because when he wanted his Hal and Barry back, he did not care. (laughs) What characters were being were caught in that crossfire? But I feel like he did a lot of good, and, and there's there's a lot of potential to do good in there. But man, uh, yeah, Kyle and Wally really really got boned. But but to you know to the Whedon run, like I said, it was a tainted well for me to begin with, and uh, maybe I owe it another try. Maybe I don't. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. But thank you so much for sharing your thoughts, Damien. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, Next, 
Andrew Franklin is talking about X-Men number nine. He says, I'm a big sci-fi fan and I love me some space stuff, but I have to agree that it's becoming a bit overused in Hoxpox docks. Outer space is treated like their backyard at this point, with some living on the moon and Shi'ar space just a short wormhole away. It makes it less special. And yeah, it's true. Space stories, as little as I ever cared for them, because I don't, they at least felt novel and different, and maybe for a lack of a better term, earned back in the day? Because it's like, hey, you told a bunch of stories and now you want to go to space? Yeah, sure, you earned it, go do it. Now, it's kind of like we're reading like a mutant Green Lantern Corps, where it's almost a surprise when they have an Earth-based adventure. And it's, uh, it's a bit much. <laughs> Andrew continues... On the other hand, if this brave new world is about breaking old paradigms and evolving the X-Men, then I can see it being a part of that evolution. I can almost hear Magneto now saying, Let the humans live on Earth, the mutants have the stars. The X-Men are closely associated with spacefaring adventures, so maybe moving more of their population and stories into space is the next step. Making it less special might just be the point. And yeah, that's certainly possible. But it would be a direction I would not care for at all. Um, speaking of X-Men in space, did I imagine this? Or was there a time where the X-Men actually lived in space? Like recently, like during Mute Marvel's feudal push of the boring Inhumans, did they send the X-Men to live in space? Uh, this is an era I've never read, but I could swear I saw something about the X-Men being off-planet or maybe like in their own dimension Maybe it was a fever dream. I kind of hope it was a fever dream, actually, but I could have sworn that I read something about that. I could be wrong. I've got a stack of unread X books, probably. If I stacked them up, it would probably be... I'd probably have to have two stacks because it would reach the ceiling. Uh, Andrew continues. (laughs) Beyond that, I like the New Mutant space story, but this King Egg saga was kind of meh. To me, the broods suffer from diminishing returns. The original Paul Smith story was great. The Outback era story was alright. And the early X-Men Volume 2 story is more notable for having Ghost Rider in it and dealing with Gambit's life in New Orleans. Uh, After that, they're all rather generic. Lionel Francis Yu draws some very cool-looking brood, though. I didn't mind the intro prelude with the Kree, but it really didn't add anything for me. The ending was very abrupt and made me ask why we even went through all of this. If, there was, if this was supposed to be funny, it fell flat. Diminishing Returns is a great way to describe the brood. Uh, my first encounter with them was that, uh, that X-Men Ghost Rider Nolan story, actually. That was the first time I ever encountered the brood. And I think in more recent years, the brood has become less of like a threat to the X-Men and more of a... You know, like when there's a big Marvel event and they start listing, it's like, we have the Kree, the Skrulls, the Badoon, the brood. It's like... Just another species in space sort of thing, which I feel like might be an attempt to make them feel more special, but to me it makes them feel like just just another in a cluster of interchangeable generic Marvel aliens. I don't know. And I the ending of X-Men number nine, you know, I, I, I was going to say I don't want to say hate because hate's a strong word, but I hated it. I hated that issue. I really considered making some changes to this program after reading that issue because I was like, I I can't do another one of these. I can't do a single issue that that frustrates me so much because who wants to listen to an idiot like me talk about something they dislike? Um, And I just did not... Oh, I did not like that issue at all. I hated that issue. (laughs) 
and I'm so beyond tired of the space stuff. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, if it was supposed to be funny, I didn't think it was. I, I well, I was like, okay, let me let me just put this in the in the box and never look at it again. Andrew continues. Damien said in his email that his favorite X-Men period is from Uncanny 200 through 279, and that's also my favorite period. I can't help but agree with his statement that change is the hallmark of the great X-Men stories, and while I love the constant change Claremont put the team through in his last few years, it's the scrappy, ragtag nature of the team that I hold dearest. The outsider underdogs, walking the line between public heroes and outlaws, that's what I loved about the X-Men. They haven't really fit that mold for a long time, but Krakoa is probably the furthest from that that they've been. Very, very good points. Very, very good points. And uh, that run, 200 to 279, was such a strong period uh, of, for the X-Men. And I actually, you know, you guys know me. I came in through uh, Lob Del Niciesa. So it was, like, staggering going back and reading these. Um, this was, you know... To so many people, this was the purest the X-Men have been. And there's a lot of merit to that statement, and I, I largely agree with it. But coming in from the, you know, the 90s crossover event to event to event to gimmick after gimmick and shadowy new character to shadowy new character, and then going to these, these pure X-Men stories. And I found these via Marvel's awesome and... Much, much missed Black and White Essentials volumes. I still have them on the bottom shelf of my bookcase right here behind me. I love them so, so much. <laughs> it was such a treat to see this um, because it was it was familiar, but at the same time it felt more real than the stuff that even brought me in. I could see what made the X-Men so special outside of all the hype, outside of... And I mean... I love the 90s stuff. The 90s stuff is my wheelhouse. But there was a lot of hype there, a lot of gimmicks, um, a lot of stunts. But when you go back to those 80s stories that, in comparison, feel kind of low-key, but they're just so good. Uh, and, you know, since then, I've gone back and I've bought almost the entire Claremont run as single issues. And I had plans with giving of giving it like a proper issue by issue read through, where I could you know look at letters pages and ads and all sorts of stuff, Bull, the bullpen bulletins. My problem is that I'd actually want to talk about it as I did it, and really, who's got time for that? So maybe one of these days, maybe when we're all caught up, <laughs> we're past uh, X of tens, and who knows? We'll see. But uh, yes, those were great, great stories here. And your point is well taken, that Krakoa is is as like polar opposite as you're going to get from those stories. And uh, yeah, it's it doesn't, you know, discount either one as being better or worse than the other, but it is, it is definitely staggering how different it is, for sure. Um, Andrew continues with, That said, here I am, plugged into the X-Men like no other time in the last 17 or so years. I attribute this more to Chris and his excellent work than anything else, but even I can't say that this new approach hasn't succeeded in getting me interested again. And that's awesome. Thank you. Thank you so, so much for, for saying that. That's just really awesome. That means a lot to me. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Andrew wraps up with, I always feel bad about writing such long emails, so until Mantis and all that Celestial and the Madonna nonsense shows up, make my next lapse. Never feel bad about writing long emails, for sure, because I enjoy them. 
I enjoy sharing them. And uh, from the sounds of it, uh, a lot of the listeners enjoy hearing them as well. So, I mean, this is such a fun little community that we're building here. And uh, it's, it's stuff, it's, you know, it's letters like this and from everyone else that just makes this so special. So thank you so much. Uh, from one Andrew to another, we're going to Andrew in Belfast, our pal. And he says... I'm really enjoying journeying through all the episodes of X-Lapsed with you and reminding me of the sheer enjoyment I've had with this Hickman era of X-Men. I'm now going back and reading some select issues on comiXology, because obsessives like me now own these books in single-issue, trade paperback, and electronic. Firstly, I just wanted to say that for my money, this is the most original era of the X-Men since Morrison's run. There aren't member berries or homages to character cliches in this era of books. They're gripping and original in the main, and immersive to a much greater extent than in recent years that preceded them. In many ways, I find the tone very similar to Morrison's run, in fact, and the art is beautiful in this current selection of books, with each title having a very distinct look, with the exception of Fallen Angels, which was quite bland. (laughs) And uh, I've seen the Hickman run compared to the Morrison run, at least in tone, scope, and originality, a bunch of times, and I totally agree. Uh, Because, as you said here, this is such a shift from what had come before. And its sheer novelty can only be viewed as, I don't know, somewhat progressive, right? I mean, like you said, this isn't a retread, and it's not overly reliant on scratching nostalgia itches. Though, there are bits of that as well which are appreciated, but they're not necessary. You know, if we see, you know, the the one that always calls me back is the scene where where the New Mutants, they meet up with Cannonball, and we see the New Mutants team all in this group hug, and Mondo and Chamber are not part of this hug because they weren't part of the New Mutants. They're Generation X characters. You don't need to know that, to, to you know, because the, the scene there is great as it is, but if you do know that, it means a little bit more, and you can sort of see that there is this generational shift between the two. So it's not necessary... That, uh, you know, the, the member berries and the homages, they're not necessary. But where they are, it means that much more for those of us in the know. So it's it's really, a lot of this is really, really well done. Andrew continues. Secondly, at first, at first read, I took similar view to you about the resurrection chambers and the devaluing of death in these books that results from it. Having reread the issues a few times now, I think that a lot of the plot element is pointing us back to a key scene in X-Force number 3, where Xavier is hatched post-assassination. Here I think we see Jean Grey outlining the fact that the, the fact that death is no longer an issue helps to heighten the heroic dimension because it allows them to focus on others rather than on themselves. On a related note, this aspect of the Hickman era also gets drawn out in the forthcoming, for you, Sword of X storyline, so it's a common theme that gets touched upon, and I think it provides a point of interest, how mutant society is strengthened or weakened by the fact that death is not the end. And yes, the resurrection protocols, and... I mean, you know, it's weird. Here we are, I mean, this is is episode 76, right? So we're 76 issues and episodes in. So... Let's say each issue is around 20 pages per, so we've read over 1,500 pages of Hox Pox Docs together in these, uh, in these past few months. And I still can't exactly put my finger on where I stand with the resurrection process. Uh, you know, I still don't know what I think about it, which might just be the point, right? Um, one thing I will say 
is that it's making me think about these comics and characters differently than I ever have before. So, I mean, that's definitely a novel experience. Uh, my analysis muscles, as they, as they may be, uh, are having to contort in very strange ways to make sense out of my, my own feelings, concerns, confusion, and misgivings about what's playing out on the page. That's not a bad thing. I don't think that's a bad thing, but I still... If, you know, gun to my head, do I like these Resurrection Protocols or not? I couldn't say. Do I think they're a good idea? I couldn't say. Are they making me think? Yes, they are. Are they making me look at characters that I've been familiar with for over 30 years in a different way? Yes. Yes, they are. So, good thing, bad thing, couldn't say, but it is definitely a thing that is affecting the way I'm reading this. And I think that's a good thing at the end of the day. Andrew continues... The other point I've been wanting to make from listening through the episodes is the interesting aspect where the Marvel Universe is now split between human and mutant spheres. I know that you've expressed some reservations about the mutant portrayal here, particularly in the context of the X-Men plus Fantastic Four miniseries. For me, though, I think this gives us an interesting dynamic in the Marvel Universe. There's the temptation to view the split and set up as as making the mutants look more villainous than normal. However, I think that view comes from the fact that the reader is grounded in the Marvel Universe that we know, i.e. we share the space that the X-Men and Marvel heroes have cohabited over the years. Therefore, we share the mental space of Sue Storm or Peter Parker or Luke Cage. The mutants establishing themselves on Krakoa establishes them as other from the long-established perspective. I would argue, however, that when reading these books, that the reader now has to alter their own frame of mind and position ourselves on Krakoa alongside the mutants. We need to read these books through their eyes and mindset, the same way we read the other Marvel books from a New York City or London-centric etc. view. Previously, the dynamic has been between mutants and humans trying to occupy a shared space. We are now in a brand new disposition, beyond that of even Genosha, and this means we have a whole new view of the mutant experience. By constantly rotating between the Marvelverse and the Krakoan Xverse, we get a broader canvas for storytelling and a whole new challenge for humans and mutants beyond previous two-state solutions experimented with in the past. I, for one, am hooked on how this plays out in the long run. If only we didn't get keep getting dragged off to Otherworld. <laughs> and uh, yes, the pull of Otherworld is sometimes very, very strong, isn't it? Whether we want it to be or not. And your point is very well taken and very well stated. I, I, I appreciate the, uh, the analysis here for sure. And as I've said a few times already, even just in this very episode, so much of my problem, and this is Chris problems, this is not, this is not uh, rational comic reader problems, this is purely Chris problems, it's rooted in editorial rather than what's actually happening. Because I'm still burned from the lost decade you know back in one of the issues of hox pox they they showed the lost decade which was i think they what they showed was cyclops's dark phoenix which ugh, i think i'm still burnt from that um where you know this is uh, there was there was a 10-year span where the x-men were just stomped into the ground by marvel brass due to their little temper tantrum about how the they, the fact that they didn't have the movie rights since 2010, we've seen the X-Men decimated, no, no pun intended. You know, they were jobbed to the Avengers. And in order to accomplish that, we had long-standing X-Men characters, long-standing X-Men fan favorites, like Beast and Wolverine, side with the Avengers over the X-Men. And characters like Cyclops turn into Dark Phoenix and murder Professor X. That sucks. The X-Men family of titles became 
Loki shield books that the X-Men just so happened to show up in from time to time. You couldn't open an issue of any X-Book from the early 2010s and not see Maria Hill more than you'd see an X-Men character. It was just ridiculous. The handful of X-Characters that Marvel actually wanted to keep as valuable, they yanked them out of the X-Men books and added them to various Avengers teams and books. We had Uncanny Avengers. With, uh, I mean, Havoc was on that team, Rogue was on that team, Cable and Deadpool were on that friggin' team. Uh, Storm became an Avenger. They, they, uh, X-23 was part of Avengers Arena. They started yanking the characters that they cared about out of the X-Books and put them in the Avengers books. I hated it. Then, of course, we had the pathetic attempt at promoting the Inhumans. So when I got around to reading X-Men plus Fantastic Four... I probably brought some of my own baggage into it. And I viewed it as sort of another attempt to tamp down on the X-Men and make them look either like lesser heroes than the rest of the Marvel Universe or just as flat-out villains. Which, I mean, they came to the Richards' door to take their son. <laughs> I mean, that's not that's not heroic behavior. That's That's villainous, that's crazy behavior. And uh, what's worse is, you know, there was a bit of, like, sociopathy there because Xavier didn't see that that was villainous or he didn't notice that, hey, this is a little bit off-putting, what I'm, what I'm doing here. I'm tearing this family apart because I feel like it. He didn't see anything wrong with that. And, I mean, a lot of this is just me being burned out and just seeing the X-Men get stomped on for a long time, but... I mean, what I see, I see, I guess. <laughs> uh, Andrew continues. Anyway, gotta go, but I'm glad I finally got around to writing into the show. It's been a total survival tool for me in 2020, and I appreciate the routine that you've given us for you giving us content every day. Comics have been my focus for escapism this year, and I've actually found that 2020 has been a very good year for comic output, with high-quality X-Books, Spider-Man and Venom books, a classic style of storytelling returning to Batman and Detective Comics, and some wonderful independence. About 18 months ago, I had nearly given up on comics, a mixture of bad behavior from pros and fans, plus a substandard product. Thankfully, whenever I needed them most, comics came through for me again this year. And your show has been a wonderful complement to some great books. And that's awesome, Andrew. Thank you so much for saying that. Um, and, you know, I got to say, this show and the comics surrounding it have been, I mean, I don't need to tell anyone here that 2020 has been a challenging year. Uh, putting together this show has been a coping and survival tool for me as well. Um, six months back, I never thought I'd be able to sit behind a microphone again and talk about comics. I thought that part of my life was done. I thought that was, you know, the microphone was going to get packed up and put in a closet, and that was going to be it. And now, this has become a real source of joy for me. Uh, it's helped keep me motivated. It's helped keep kept me on task. Uh, it's And it's even provided me with this wonderful sense of community that I never, ever expected to find. So thank you. Thank you so much. Um... To know that this show is a little bit of a help, it means the world to me. It, that is just so awesome. Thank you. Uh, we're going to wrap up with an email from our friend Mark, Green Lantern HG, and he is talking about the Chris and Reggie Channel Thanksgiving weekend 2020. He says, I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. I had a chance to catch up on all past episodes, so this will be a mashup of the past four days. 
It was good to hear Reggie's voice, even if it was for something as complicated as Sandman. I didn't really follow Sandman. I read some of it, but it was just not for me. Although I do like Death and Lucifer. And yes, uh, the Sandman uh, Gatherums here. uh, That was the final Sandman Gatherum that I put out on Black Friday. And uh, with the little gag in there that, you know, all the, all the Sandman readers wore black when I was growing up. So <laughs> Black Friday and uh, Sandman, it just worked for me. It also made it so I, was, I didn't have to take a break from cooking Thanksgiving dinner to record something that day. So it was a twofer for me. Um, but it was, uh, it was also, it was very nice for me to listen back to some of those as well. Uh, those... Um, those were the last shows that Reggie and I did before his aortic dissection in May of 2019. So those were uh, those were particularly special, um, and I haven't listened to them since um, back in May of 2019. So it's been almost two years since I've heard any of those, and it was it was very <laughs> it was very funny listening to them because for some of the books that we discussed, we were we were just so over it. And for some of them, we were excited. So it was. I got to hear us both excited and just like, let's get through this. So it was fun. It was a real nice cross section of uh, of some of our banter and stuff. It was really cool. And those Sandman Universe gatherums, they were a lot of fun for us to do for a few reasons. Um, first, because it was actually a request from a listener of Weird Science DC Comics that we cover them. They asked for us specifically, which was awesome because. Uh, you, you know me, I, I don't think anything I do is worth listening to So someone reaching out and saying Hey, I want Chris and Reggie to do these That just totally made my day It was so cool uh, Second, Reggie was a huge Sandman fan And he'd read the series a few times over I was familiar with Sandman But I never actually read the entirety of the original Game and Run So I, I'd read bits and pieces and here and again but I couldn't, I couldn't write a thesis on it. I couldn't tell you anything, really, about it outside of the handful of issues that I read. So, with The Gatherum, we were able to deliver a take from both a seasoned fan and a new reader, which I think offers a lot to the listener. Like, it could answer questions such as, like, would a new reader be able to follow this? Or do you need to have the, read the first volume to follow this? We were able to answer those questions with this because if there was something I didn't understand and I could ask Reggie, it's like, hey, do I need to have prior knowledge to understand this? And he would say either yes or no. It might be something that was brand new that I assumed was from the first volume or it might be something that was actually rooted in the Sandman lore. So it was really cool that we were able to do that because... Uh, contrastly, we we started our Gatherum series with the Young Animal books that DC put out in 2016. And we often asked each other, like, how would a new reader receive something like Doom Patrol? Doom Patrol was the flagship of the Young Animal run. And we figured that was probably the most potentially lucrative for DC. Because it was a, a main, oh, I guess a secondary DC property. Uh, though nowadays it, I think they have their own show, so... A little bit more popular than just a a second stringer, but we would ask each other, like, hey, you know, we're reading this and we're enjoying it, but what would a new reader think? Would someone who'd never read the Arnold Drake run or the Morrison run, would they know, would, would they receive this the same way we would? 
Reggie and I were both huge Doom Patrol fans, and we knew the team inside and out. We, we've read the entirety of the runs several times over, so we were able, unable to assert whether or not this volume, the Gerard Way Young Animal volume, would be a good jumping-on point. So it was a question that we'd, we'd, let, we'd asked a few times but never really heard anything about. So being able to do that with the Sandman books was a lot of fun because... I was there as the new reader. He was there as the seasoned, you know, professional Sandman reader. So we were able to work off each other very well, I think, in that regard. Back to Mark here. Hearts of Darkness. And he's talking about From Claremont to Claremont, Episode 3B. He says, oh, man. Well, I'm not ashamed to say I like this book. It's not the greatest story ever, but for me, it signaled two things. First, team up of Punisher, Wolverine, and Ghost Rider. And the other is that those can, they can defeat Mephisto how? I don't know, but them being together made Blackheart plot and Mephisto nervous. I don't know if you ever read Ghost Rider when Danny Ketch was Ghost Rider, but the blood splashing on his face was because when he was introduced, it was something like when Bruce Banner got angry and turned into the Hulk. Danny would have to put some blood on the medallion on his bike in order to transform. Of course, they didn't keep that in continuity. Marvel in the 90s. And there is a sequel to Hearts of Darkness that I hope I find someday. I know it's not the best, but I liked it. I'm still working on the soundtrack of my life. I've gone through lots of changes in my life, and it's hard to pinpoint the songs that are more meaningful to me. Now, Hearts of Darkness wasn't a bad book. Um, It certainly wasn't the piece of high literature I thought it was back in 1991, but (laughs) it was a good enough time. And no, I never actually read the Danny Catch Ghost Rider, Uh, so this information is all new for me. Thank you. It's weird, like, I I live in, you know, the, the, the quarter bins and the 50-cent bins and just the back-issue bins in general. And there are certain properties that so seldom show up. You know, over on DC's side, Wonder Woman never shows up in these books, in these boxes. And I don't know why. Maybe maybe there was a, you know, smaller print runs, or maybe people who buy Wonder Woman don't get rid of their books. I don't know. Over on Marvel's side, it's Ghost Rider of the 90s. The 90s Ghost Rider. So the Danny Ketch stuff is hard to come by. And those were books that would sell out very, very quickly and just be marked up you know, twice, three times the price pretty quick because Ghost Rider was a really, really hot property back then, despite the fact that Howard Mackey was writing it. Uh, now, I'm also looking forward to hearing your soundtrack of your life here because those have been some very, very fun discussions. Uh, for those listening to this show who don't listen to From Claremont to Claremont episodes, uh, a gimmick that I'm running there for these segments is that I'm asking my co-hosts to share with us the songs that would be on the soundtrack of their lives. It's provided a great bit of insight and a whole lot of fun conversation because, I mean, there's just so much meat on that bone. And so if anyone listening would like to share the soundtrack of their lives, please do. Please do. It's a fun exercise to do, even if you don't share it with, uh, with me or anybody. It's a fun exercise because it really makes you think about moments in your life and just what songs affect you in certain ways, even if they have nothing to do with your life, just a song that affects you. I think there's a lot of fun discussion there. Um, The whole thing with From Claremont to Claremont is I'm trying to make it more than just me and a co-host talking about a comic book, right? I want it to be a little bit different than that because I try to offer something that you're not going to get everywhere else. Um... So I've, I, I integrate gimmicks into each of these segments, and so far the co-hosts have all been very, 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 very kind in <laughs> indulging me. 
this is the third episode that we're putting together right now. The first episode, it kind of included a life and times bit. So I would ask my co-host about their times as a comics fan, you know, their comic fandom history, their secret origin, if you will, how they discovered comics, what comics they loved, when they left comics, when they came back to comics, all that sort of stuff was part of the first episode. And uh, from Claremont to Claremont has like eight or nine segments. So, I mean, it's it's a long show. Uh, for episode two, I ran my co-host through the Marvel Bullpen Bulletin's profile questionnaire. Uh, basically, as a way to facilitate my asking them a bunch of silly questions that would never come up in conversation. You know, things like, you know, who would play you in a movie on about your life? You know, stuff like that. If you're a fan of Marvel from the 80s, on the Bullpen Bulletin's page, they would often... Uh, maybe for like the second half of the 80s They had a little Like basically a trading card for their For their editorial team And it would just be a battery of Silly questions about How they got into comics And uh, what their pet peeves are Where they were born, what their hobbies are Talking about their unfulfilled ambitions Stuff like that And I just was taken With these, uh, we covered a lot of these On Moratory Mondays Where we would We would just read through these things and really had a blast with it. And I thought it would be really cool to do a pod file, you know, with with my co-host going through these questions and just seeing how silly it got. And also finding finding out that you you, you do learn more about one another that way. Uh, It was really, really fun. Now for episode three, of course, it's the soundtracks. And uh, so far, they've been a blast. They've been really, really cool, really insightful, and... uh, not not easy, not easy to compile. Uh, I'm I'm working on mine right now, and it's it's hard. It's really hard, but it's also so much fun, and it leads to a lot of introspection. And uh, you know, when you when you when you finish it, when you're done with it, you, you learn something about someone that you're you're friends with. You know, you learn things you didn't know, and I think that's kind of the tone that I, I want for all the shows on this channel, where. You know, this isn't just a show. It's it's a club. You know, it's a we're we're in this together. We're on this journey together, and you know, if we get to know each other a bit better in the process. I, I think that's only a good thing. So, I do have more crazy gimmicks in mind for future installments. So, stay tuned if that's your thing. Uh, back to Mark here. He continues. Major X lapsed. Um, pass. <laughs> I would think that Wolverine or Deadpool would make this better, but. No, I guess he's not the best he is at what he does. <laughs> oh, Major X was an experience. Uh, thankfully, it's one that's now behind us. Um, all I can say about Major X and Major X Lapsed is that I sincerely hope that nobody spent any actual money on Major X in order to keep up with the show, because I would feel very, very guilty if that was the case. Oof. The first issue, sure, because that one's still going up in value for some ridiculous reason. But the rest of it, eh, you don't need it. Uh, and finally, uh, back to Mark, he says, Kate not being able to resurrect. Oh, Marvel and their old gimmicks all over again. It's I'm interested in finding out why she can't resurrect, and especially since we know that she will be. So it's going to be interesting. Uh, Mark wraps up with, keep up the great work, Chris. Good or bad, I'm along for the ride, and hopefully Marvel will look harder into making these characters the best they were and are in our hearts. So thank you so much for uh, for the very insightful email, Mark. I always appreciate hearing from you, and I'm happy that you are 
along for the ride. And I'm happy everybody's along for the ride. And uh, if anybody out there would like to get a hold of me and uh, share some of your thoughts, and of course, uh, if you have some time and want to put together the soundtrack of your lives, that's also very, very welcome. Um, I'm hoping to maybe put together like Spotify playlists so we'll all have the soundtrack of our lives just there you know so if you want to if you want to listen to the soundtrack of Chris's life and hear some like weird yacht rock and christmas music and all sorts of stuff you'll you'll be able to do that whenever you feel like it but uh yeah if you have anything send it my way uh now you can reach me at ace comics on twitter or at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com you can find blog posts and show notes at chrisisoninfinitearths.com We also have xlapsed.chrisisoninfinitearths.com You can join us on the Facebook group At 90s X-Men And of course the entire Chris and Reggie Audio Archives Is there at your fingertips At chrisandreggie.podbean.com I think that's where we will leave it today uh, This was a long one I'm, I'm sorry And <laughs> thank you for sticking around If you did Um one more giant thank you to everyone for sharing your time, your thoughts, everything. It's been an absolute blast. And uh, like uh, our friend Mark said, good or bad, we're in this for the long haul. So thank you to everybody. And uh, until next time, I will talk to you all again real soon. See ya. Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 79 of X-Lapsed, where we're actually going to be dipping into the number 11s here. We're going to be talking about New Mutants, volume 4, number 11, at a September 2020 cover date. And you know, when I look at this, I'm looking at my little short box now that's full of uh, our unread and unreached uh, Dawn of X books here, and... I've only got two more issues of New Mutants in this thing. Uh, the latest one I have is number 13. Um, I know I have a big old box from DCBS on its way as we speak, so <laughs> by the next time uh, I hit up a recording here, there might be one or two more in there, but 
we're getting damn close. We are getting damn close. So let's get right into it today. This is, of course, New Mutants, Volume 4, Number 11. Stories called Ice Cream Dreams, written by Ed Brisson, with art by Flaviano, or Flaviano, or however you say that. Colors, Carlos Lopez, letters, VCs, Travis Lanham, designs, Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman, edits, Bisa White-Sobolski, cover price $3.99, went on sale July 22nd of this very year, 2020. Now we open, and we're in the inky blackness of Tashi Rapina's living nightmare. We, you know, more or less pick up right where we left off. Armor is being visited by her brother and her mother, and I'm pretty sure last issue I mentioned that it was her parents, so mea culpa for that. Uh, They beg her to free them from this nightmare, but of course, this is all in her head. Double page spread of credits followed by roll call. Boom Boom, Chamber, Magma, Mirage, Karma, Cypher, Mondo, Armor, Wolfsbane, Wildside, Glob, and Magic will be featured prominently and, and less so in this very issue we're going to cover. So, we're inside the inky sphere of inkiness, and Armor is just completely out of it. Her armor bubble even shatters, which leaves her teammates in kind of a tough spot. Doug turns to Mondo to tell him that, you know, hey, you're on... Which is kind of weird, because I wasn't aware Mondo had this sort of powers. You see, Mondo starts to somehow pull together the broken armor bubble pieces. But we'll get back to that in a minute. First, we jump back outside to, uh, where are we? Carnelia. So we're in the snowy, snowy Carnelian uh, landscape here. And Danny is freaking out that her poltergeist tether has broken. And the natives, which is to say the Carnelian security squad, they're getting restless. They're starting to feel like the mutants have wasted enough of their time, and they begin their approach. Now, Rain attempts to reason with them, which is futile for a couple of reasons. First, they're bigots. Second, she doesn't speak Russian. So, there you go. Tabitha figures, screw it, and just tosses a time bomb, which, much to the Prime Minister's dismay, is not caught on film, so he can't use that to further his propaganda dealy here. Back inside the bubble. Now, Mondo has, again, somehow reassembled Armor's armor around himself. He's dragging Wildside by the remains of Danny's poltergeist tether over to Tashi. Bingo, bango, he's finally able to touch her, using his reality-warping powers to change her bad dreams to good. And then, boom. Suddenly, the inky mass is full of literal sunshine and lollipops. uh, Unicorns and plushies, too. The bubble bursts, uh, it's like the world's weirdest piñata, and the New Mutants are free. Tashi still looks all twisted, it's worth noting. I figured she'd probably go back to looking the way she did in her earliest picture. I think we saw her on an info page where she just looked like a regular uh, preteen or teenage girl. But at least for the moment, she still looks like she did on the inside of the ink bubble, which is to say she has exaggerated features, she's kind of hunched over. It's a, It's a different look. So now, as the New Mutants pick themselves up, the Carnelian Guard decides it's time to arrest them. You gotta remember, they still believe that this entire Megillah here was just a show from the Kirkoans in order to strut their stuff in light of Carnelia refusing to sign the treaty. Which is exactly what the Prime Minister wants them all to believe, of course. And so, our heroes are surrounded. The new mutants who were just freed from the ink world are momentarily powerless, so they're kind of out of it, so if this were to come to a fight, well, they'd be of precious little use. Boom Boom is totally ready to start chucking bombs left and right, but Danny thankfully is able to talk her off the precipice, suggesting that maybe it's best just to surrender, regroup, 
and then come up with a better plan. Turns out that this is a completely moot point, however, because before the Carnelians can take our kids into custody, magic shows up, and she's pissed. Now, she lays down a few threats before warping the entire New Mutants team and Tashi away. Next, an info page, and it's our friends at Docs. They're talking all about the Carnelian carnage, which is, a you know, decent sensationalism in it. Uh, one thing on this page that kinda, kinda irks me is how they're still poking fun at how Boom Boom had a bunch of different code names. Uh, this is just some of that low-hanging fruit sort of stuff that gets under my skin. This is definitely just a Chris problem. But if I never have to hear that Boom Boom had a lot of code names, or that Kitty Pride was scared of Storm's mohawk, or that Jean Grey dies all the time, it would be way, way, way too soon. From here, we resume our story. We're back on Krakoa, and we're in the Healing Gardens. The Morlock Healer is running some tests on Karma, and he's found a strange anesthetic in her blood, which he's going to test. Now, this is the stuff that's running through our new friend Tashi's veins while she sleeps. So if he can get to the bottom of it, they can have a better idea of what makes her tick. We learn here that Tashi's new code name is going to be Cosmar. Don't know what that means, but yeah, it's good as any. Nearby, Armor is still coming to grips with the vision of her family that she saw, and Doug goes to lend her a shoulder, but she'd prefer to be alone. Maybe she saw that one of Doug's shoulders is techno-organic and didn't want any part of it. From here, another info page, and it's Boom Boom's diary, and it's sort of uh, actually summing up the entire Brisson run to this point. Uh, she talks about the farm, she talks about Nova Roma, and of course she talks about Carnelia. Gotta say, Tabitha's uh, voice here is still wildly annoying. Elsewhere, Danny is visiting with Cosmar, who's locked in a glass tube while they try to get a bead on her powers. Maxime and Manon are there as well, with the latter offering to pop into uh, Tashi's head and change her memories to, inv to avoid any further bad dreams, to which Danny says no. Further, Danny says the following, quote, It would be easy for us to do that, but we can't remake people. We can't change their past, even if we think what we're doing will help them. Unquote. So uh, clearly, our Ms. Moonstar has not been reading X-Force lately. Yeah. Anywho, M and M are here because Manon is going to use his empathic powers on Tashi in order to keep her calm. Maxime is there to make sure Manon doesn't fall asleep on the job. The creepy kids, they're just there, happy to help. So they're fine with this. We resume back at the sextant, I think, maybe? Wherever we are, we're with Magic, Danny, and Doug. And they're talking about our favorite website, chrisandreggie.pot... No, um, Docs. Docs, of course. Um, Magic fills her friends in on the fact that she was able to follow them to Carnelia simply because Docs reported it. Also, that Docs posted the address for the Bohusk farm in Pilgrim, Nebraska, which led to that big mess. Danny asks if what Docs is doing is against the law because, to her, it's gotta be. But alas, it is not. At least, not, it's not against human law. And so, the New Mutants are going to regulate on the basement-dwelling bloggers behind the Docs site. And I guess I'm, on, I'm off the hook there because we really don't have basements in Arizona. But if they did say Kitchen Island-dwelling bloggers, well, well, then I'd probably be getting up and locking my doors right about now, not that it would be much help. Anyway, we wrap up this issue with the New Mutants preparing to take their fight to Docs. And I tell you what, I can't wait to see this one. So, looking forward to the next issue, but next episode... We're going to rejoin our old friend Wolverine for his third issue. But before that, let's talk about what we have here. Well, I suppose this was a uh, 
satisfying enough conclusion to the Cornelia arc. Um, plus, we wind up with a brand new mutant. Thing of it is, uh, there really isn't all that much to say about it, is there? Um, I mean, the bits with the inky limbo balloon, I, I feel like they really didn't need to leak into this issue, did they? Uh, there really wasn't all that much to it. Armor's bubble broke, Mondo repaired it and brought Wildside over to touch Tashi, and that's it. I, I get that we have trades to fill, and issues to fill en route to X of Tens, but there really wasn't all that much in the way of meat here. You know, uh, granted, I mean, the reality is Marvel doesn't care about the week-to-week or month-to-month customer anymore, so this is just a, a bit more of me shaking my fist at the sky. But still, this was a bit thin. We get an ending, and it's not a bad one in the slightest, but the trip we took to get there was kind of like like driving through Nebraska. Not a whole lot to see or talk about. Uh, for me, the main takeaway for this issue was Danny's comments to the creepy twins toward the end of the issue. She talks about how it isn't right to mess with people's past experiences, even if we think we're doing them a favor. Now, for those of you who have listened to this show a time or two, you know we've spent quite a bit of time talking about that here on the show, especially in light of Domino's resurrection. Uh, The first one, I think. I mean, geez, there have been so many. Uh, The one where she was scarred, both physically and emotionally, before she died. I hope that narrows it down enough to figure out which one we're talking about here. I hope this was not an accidental mention, because, to be honest, I'm still not convinced that any of the creators involved are actually reading each other's work here, and I'm also not sure what the slew of credited editors actually do either. Hopefully it's intentional, and if it was, well, then I liked it, because, I mean, this might sort of set the table for an eventual Krakoan schism. If we remember, uh, Nightcrawler mentioned back in X-Men number 7 that he was already seeing cracks in the foundation of this mutant society, and this sort of thing may speak to that. I'm very excited if this is the case, because, uh, I mean, there's some weirdness going on here. We know for a fact that Domino's been altered, and we don't know that it was her wishes to be altered. And then, you know, we can consider things like, well, does she have any right to ask to be altered? It's There's a lot of... Uh, I, I don't want to use the word philosophical because I'm anything but, but I suppose there is a philosophical element to it. But it's, uh, it's interesting. And seeing Danny here, not talking about the resurrection protocols, but just simply the fact that they have this, this mutant child who can change people's memories and has done so for, uh, for Beacon Angel and the kids uh, back after the Pilgrim Mess. It's, it's just interesting to see that being revisited here, and it opens things up to, to the realization that they can actually change people without them dying, you know? Because I think we've, we've put a lot of focus on the fact that once they die, I mean, whatever Professor X wants to do with them, he's going to do with them. But here with Maxime and Manon, this can happen even before death. So it's... Uh, I don't know, it's interesting. I I wonder if this will ever come to play, and it's one of those things like, we have a book like Hellions right now, with these inconvenient mutants, and you wonder why Maxime and Manon weren't, you know, brought in to maybe tinker in their heads a bit, or before Sabretooth was thrown into stasis. It's, yeah, just food for thought, food for thought. Now, what else do we have here? Uh, Armor is disturbed by seeing her family in the Nightmare Balloon. I don't recall much of Armor's backstory, just that she was a, you know, she was Joss Whedon's big contribution to the X-Men, which at the time I think a lot of us joked that it was just another young girl for Wolverine to team up with and mentor, which 
you know, she sort of was. Uh, I don't know that I'm all excited to see where this story arc goes. Uh, I don't know that we need to explore it much further either. Which means we're probably going to get a 12-part story arc digging into it right after X of Tens, but fingers crossed we don't. Uh, boom, boom, she's still very annoying. But uh, it seems that, you know, <laughs> that ship's already sailed, at least for now. I am curious if Tashi Rapino will become a member of this team, or, conversely, if we'll ever see her again. I feel like she might just become a character we can spot in the background of a panel every few issues, which, after all I know, might be exactly what you know needs to be done with her. Uh, what I'm most happy about here with this issue is the fact that next issue takes the fight to Docs, which is a concept that I've been excited to see fleshed out a bit uh, since it was first mentioned several issues back. I have high hopes, cautious optimism for the next issue, or however many the Doc story will fill. I think, uh, I think it's only, I think it's going to be a one and done because I think right after next issue we go into X of Ten, so it's got to just be a one, one and done. So I'm looking forward to it. High hopes for it. Um, let's briefly touch on the art before we go. It was good, but there's this weird thing with Flaviano here. It looks as though everybody has a Band-Aid on their cheek. I think it's supposed to indicate like a, a shine, like a dewiness, but it really just looks like a Band-Aid. It, the, the line work on it is too harsh to make it feel like it's just a, a you know, a degradation of color or whatever just to show a glow. It looks like its own thing, and it's on like every face here. It kept catching my attention. Uh, other than that, it was good. I suppose overall, if you've read this far into the Carnelia story, then you'll probably want to check this one out too. It was decent, but not exceptional. And that's all I got to say about New Mutants number 11. Let's hop into the mailbag here and uh, do some chatting. We're going to start with Damien, who's talking about Marauders number 10. He says, I have reread Marauders 6 through 12 a number of times and really enjoy the story. Within that ongoing story, issue 10 works very well, but by itself, it's slightly lacking. There's an element of padding in here that makes me wonder if Duggan was made to extend his story by one issue to plug the gap until X of Tens. And you know, I have no insider knowledge, but it sure reads that way, doesn't it? It really does. Um, I'll usually point out things like truncation, which to me, especially in this day and age, kind of stands out more than decompression and padding simply due to the nature of monthly comic storytelling in order to fill a trade, we're just so accustomed to decompression. When we see something like truncation, it really stands out. It's like a, it's like a, a red alert. But yes, this feels like we might be lingering on some points here a bit to pad out our page count. Um, this probably does have a lot to do with getting us to X of Tens, which, you know, it, it reminds me that it's been a minute since our last big crossover. Yeah, I, I honestly can't believe it's taken us this long to get here. It used to be, yeah, at least it would feel like, we'd get like three or four months of story, followed by at least four months of crossover, and then repeat, repeat, repeat. That's the way it felt, but here, and, and I know the uh, the COVID um, hiatus pushed X of Tens back a bit further than they intended to, but uh, I feel like we're actually getting some decent decent story here before we're getting into the event and hopefully hopefully they stick with that because god i mean how many events are going on in marvel right now right this minute there's got to be like three or four <laughs> it's just ridiculous um not including x of tens of course 
Uh, Damien continues. Interesting to hear you comment about the reading order in your copy. I buy new comics digitally, and my issue has the correct reading order. They must have printed your one before the shutdown and corrected the digital edition. I'm really looking forward to hearing your thoughts on the next two issues of Marauders, as I love them. And what Damien's talking about there is... um, well, he basically said it right there. It's the reading order list in the back of the issues that uh, that I've been using as a guide to put together these episodes and the episode order. Uh, they were all kind of weirded out because of the, the COVID hiatus. Um, I mean, the list I was looking at actually had Children of the Atom on it as releasing in April. I don't think we're getting that until maybe this coming April or February or something like that. Somewhere late winter, early spring, we're not getting that until... But it was interesting to see that, and it's interesting to me that um, that they'd bother to edit it for the digital. Um, I mean, the indicia as well, because everywhere I look, the uh, the uh, what is it? The cover date for these issues was pushed back. But in my copies, they said June, and a lot of these books came out in June and July. So for a bit of weirdness there, the indicia was actually earlier than the release date. And since I am such a stickler for the way things are in the book, I keep it that way. I don't I don't <laughs> refer to the others, but uh, it's really interesting that they would bother to do that. I, I may, maybe there's a legal component to that. Maybe I don't know. Uh, you know, ever since digital has become this ubiquitous presence in comics publishing, some of the decisions they've made about you know meta edits have fascinated me. Um, not only this instance with the Indicia being altered to reflect a new uh, release date. But things like the rating systems, which, you know, I know I've touched on this before somewhere on this channel, but I couldn't tell you exactly where. And if I did, I mean, then you'd have to go find it yourself. And, I mean, who's got time for that? Uh, What I'm getting at is stuff like seeing that a book had initially bore the Comics Code Authority seal on them, right? Which, to me and to most, says it's safe for kids. Now those same books are being rated as T+, as in, you know, for people 13 and over. And I wonder, like, what changed, right? Why, why is a book that was approved by the Comics Code, the, you know, the stringent, horrible, Puritan Comics Code authority, why is a book approved by them no longer suitable for kids 12 and under? Seems weird. My go-to for this is, um, I don't remember exactly the issue number. It's Superman Volume 2 number... 22 or 23, John Byrne's last issue where where Superman kills the uh, the Phantom Zone criminals. Big deal at the time. Uh, to some, it still is. Uh, but that was a Comics Code approved book, and it was rated like 13 plus on Comicsology, and it just seemed so weird that back in the 80s we were we were we were built of strong enough stuff to to read a story where where Superman can kill someone. Whereas today, we, we just can't. But yes, the, the digital physical, uh, you know, di- the dissonance between them is very interesting to me. It's one of those things that is probably only interesting to me, because I'm sure I'm probably boring everybody here. Uh, the next two issues of Marauders, I'm also looking forward to those, because uh, I believe this is where uh, a, lot of, a lot of chickens come home to roost. So I haven't read ahead. All I've looked at is the covers, and the covers do tell a tale which I'm very, very interested in seeing how it plays out. But uh, I look forward to sharing my thoughts and uh, those those issues with everybody when we get to them. But uh, thank you so much, Damien, 
for uh, reaching out and sharing your thoughts there. Next, we're going to go to uh, Mark, a.k.a. Green Lantern HG, and he's talking about X-Force number 10. We've actually got a, a double feature for, uh, for Mark here. Regarding X-Force number 10, he says, Great couple of episodes, Chris. Just just as you said, I was expecting Kenny to peek around the corner and say, They killed Domino, you bastards. And, uh, yes, that is a commentary on how often Domino and, and you know, also Quentin Quire are killed in X-Force. And it almost feels like we're veering into parody at this point. It's like, just because you can kill everyone doesn't mean you have to, right? Uh... And of course, given the new status quo, we're expecting casualties. That's just part of the game now. That's part of the story. That's part of the hook. But this is just way too much. In my opinion, of course. I mean, there might be folks out here there who just love it. Love seeing these characters die in different ways. Uh, and it's funny. I mean, they didn't kill people this rapidly in Strike Force Moratori. And that was the whole gimmick of the book. It's so weird how they're just... We can't go an issue, it seems. Uh, another piece from Mark talking about giant size Magneto. He says another great episode, Chris. Now I feel like this was a little more Marvel. Having Namor in this issue is weird and yet familiar. And I'll confess, I'm one of the few people that never stopped calling Magneto Eric. And yeah, this was an interesting issue. Um, as I said during the episode, not much meat on the bone for a five dollar book, in my opinion, but decent enough world building. And I am a sucker for world building, and I'm interested in seeing where they're headed with uh, Emma's new island. And yes, I'm with you. Uh, Magneto will always be Eric, or or Magnus to me. <laughs> I remember on trading cards, his real name was Magnus, and it's like, ah, well, it sounds like Magneto, so I guess that's fair enough. But thank you so much for your kind words and sharing your thoughts there, Mark. I really, really appreciate it. Next, uh, our friend Evan Bevins chimes in to uh, address Damien's comment in episode 35 regarding the use of the Queen of England in Excalibur. Now, he says, listening to the mailbag from episode 35, and while I understand Damien's concerns, I really want to see Captain America reporting on his activities to a bald eagle, particularly in the midst of the most serious stories. And yeah, not going to lie, I'd like to see that too. Maybe, maybe we could Photoshop a bald eagle over every appearance of Maria Hill during the 2010s, since Cap seemed to have to report, like, even every bowel movement to her. We could just have her being a bald eagle. I think it would be really, really good. But uh, I, I, I've said it before. I love it when, uh, when listeners comment on each other's comments. And uh, Damien's discussion of uh, the Queen of England being used in Excalibur was, was very funny and very uh, enlightening. To uh, you know, a, an unworldly fellow like myself But um, I always like to see the humor and that kind of stuff So thank you, Evan, for, for reporting in uh, Next, Joe Crawford is going to rank his Dawn of X number twos He's just burning through the uh, anthology trades here And he's been sharing a lot of thoughts with me in his rankings So let's see how he ranked the Dawn of X wave one number twos Number one, Marauders. Two, X-Force. Three, New Mutants. Four, X-Men. Five, Excalibur. Six, Fallen Angels. Joe says it's a pretty strong month. He even enjoyed some of Excalibur. It's starting to find the right mix of silliness and action. X-Force was my surprise. Really dug it. Island mating and X-Men? Hickman nailed it. Ready for book three. Well, thank you. I, and you're, you're just burning through these things so quick. It's amazing. I really appreciate you sharing your thoughts with us here. And it's, it's so weird that 
I mean, it's almost goes without saying that Excalibur and Fallen Angels will be five or six in just about anybody's lists. That's, <laughs> I don't know. It's just uh, the way it is. I don't know that I've seen anyone rank them higher at, uh, to this point. Maybe I have, but uh, not too many, not too many, especially not Fallen Angels. But uh, Marauders is on the top of everybody's list here, and uh, it makes me wish that I was more in tune with the you know comics commentary community to see just how widespread the love is for Marauders, because it is a top-tier book here. And as I've said time and again, the most consistently strong book of the line. But thanks again, Joe, for uh, for sharing your thoughts on the Wave 1 number 2s, and I'll probably be sharing your Wave 1 number 3s next episode. But we're going to wrap up with a message from Andrew Franklin discussing X-Force number 10. He starts by setting me straight and saying eggs are definitely not meat, which is kind of an earth-shattering thing for me. I, I don't know why, why I would get... It's so weird, right? I mean, are, are they meat? But, but then you, you eat them with meat. You have them with bacon or with sausage. So maybe, maybe I've been wrong all this time. I don't know. And maybe I'm just confusing vegetarianism with veganism. That is a possibility as well. But he continues. X-Force number 10 is the first issue of that series that I'm reading for myself. Having now seen the book, I thought the art was a step down from the styles of Hellions and X-Men, the only two two series I actually read issues for. I don't think it's bad, just not what I expected. I really did not like the info page that came during the Gene and Hank scene and was glad to hear you highlight your problems with it as well. It read like it was an actual page from the script and was published as an info page instead of drawing the two or three pages it would have taken up. It struck me as really lazy and kind of soured the book for me, which I thought was otherwise fine. And it's true. Um, That is a, a reference to an info page which basically tells the like second half of a scene that we were watching <laughs> in sequential art form just the page before and uh, th- i mean they they do have uh, a way of lampshading it since they they kind of introduced an observer you know someone actually saw this happen but at the same time it just felt like such a letdown especially considering that this Hank and Gene confrontation is something that i feel like's been you know kind of bubbling away in the background here because Hank is doing some Unethical and immoral things And Gene is, you know, the moral compass of the team I felt like this should have been Played out on panel On page, in art Whereas, we got like a paragraph It's like, oh, well Gene said this And then Gene left, and then Hank cried It's like, what? (laughs) Okay And yes, it definitely It definitely soured the book for me as well A bit as for the art, I, I, I'm really digging the art. I'm really digging the art. Uh, the, what's his face? Uh, Kassara. I'm, I'm digging him. I, I've never seen him before. So it's a, it's a nice surprise for me. Uh, Andrew continues. It was great hearing Reggie again on the Sandman Gatherum you posted. I miss hearing his voice. I listened to the Gatherums as they were posted, and it was, it was fun to remember how incomprehensible some of those books were. Just dreadful stuff. The Gatherums did make me check out The Dreaming, though, since I'm a big fan of Neil Gaiman's Sandman, and it actually sounded like it was good, a rarity in revisitations. I was glad to hear Reggie's good words about Bilquis Evely. I first learned of her when she was one of the regular artists on Rebirth-era Wonder Woman, and then she skyrocketed to the top of my favorite artist list. I have a very nice collage of her work on Wonder Woman hanging on my wall. And yes, I posted the final Sandman Universe Gatherum uh, on Black Friday in America, as a, I said it was a way to tie in with all the f- 
folks who like Sandman wearing black, but in fact, I just didn't want to have to take a break from preparing Thanksgiving dinner to record an episode, so I figured it was new to most, so (laughs) it was fair play, but uh, that was a fun one to put out, it was a fun one to revisit myself, because, uh, yeah, like you said, uh, some of these books were very, very bad, Um, there were (laughs) the, uh, what is it, the Books of Magic, um, which was one I was very excited to do because I liked the original Books of Magic. And uh, I was, we were covering that book on the Sandman Gatherums, and there were literally issues of that book that could have been summed up with Tim Look to the Left. And that was it for 20 something pages. Tim Look to the Left. Just so bad. Decompression to the to the nth times a thousandth degree. Uh, just insanely decompressed. But, um, those were fun to revisit, re-listen to. It's funny, out of all the stuff that, uh, you know, the thousands of hours Reggie and I recorded together uh, talking about comics and stuff, uh, the stuff that I'll, that I find myself revisiting or wanting to revisit outside of comics talk, which are just very, very special episodes to me, uh, are things like the gatherums because they're just so weird. And it wasn't often where he and I would go off script and uh, just kind of react and just be frustrated with how bad a book is. Because, I mean, we chose some books that we didn't like for the Cosmic Treadmill. Like, you know, Superman Grounded jumps out immediately as a book that we both just despised. But we had control over that. We chose that book because we wanted to cover it and, and explain why it, why it was what it was. With things like Young Animal and Sandman... We were given a job, basically. It's like, here, talk about this book. Good, bad, and different. This is the book to talk about. So we were kind of trapped in the best way possible, is what I'm trying to get at. Because sometimes these books would make us very, very happy. Sometimes they would just really, really get under our skin, and we would just get so angry. I don't... I don't try, I try not to curse too much on this channel, um, and... I think it was during Young Animal episodes, toward the end of the run, were the only couple of times that I dropped an F-bomb on on this channel, because we were just so done with that line, outside of maybe the Mother Panic book. We both liked that one at the end, but everything else was just like, okay, let's get this thing done. So those are the ones that I find myself really wanting to revisit. Uh, Whenever I would get around to revisiting episodes, uh... Uh, before before Reggie passed, I would re-listen to those um, every now and again, but uh, I haven't I haven't since. But maybe one of these days I'll have to get back into that as well. Uh, Andrew wraps up with, "That's all I've got to say for now. So until I die and resurrect for the umpteenth time, make mine X lapsed." Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts there, Andrew, and thank you for the kind words about the Sandman gatherums here. I, I never know if people are going to listen to that stuff. Um, and a lot of those, I mean, like I said, they're they're very special. Uh, a lot of the, a lot of the unfinished business episodes that I've put up since May uh, have been, they've been hard to do, and, and they've been hard to kind of promote because I don't know, it's, it's, I feel weird promoting them. I feel weird trying to you know get hits, and it's uh, it's nice when when folks do listen to them and, and enjoy them, and uh, and are able to remember. So thank you so much for that. That really means a lot. But uh, I think that's where we'll leave it for today. 
If anyone out there would like to get a hold of me, you can do so very easily. I'm at Ace Comics on Twitter or WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes at Chris'sOnInfiniteEarth.com. There's also the dedicated X-Lapsed page, which now includes major X-Lapsed, over at xlapsed.chris'sOnInfiniteEarth.com. You can join us on Facebook and talk about whatever the hell you want. 90s X-Men is the group. And you can hear the entire Chris and Reggie audio archives, including... The Gatherums, Young Animal, Sandman, uh, Comics Talk is another good one there. Uh, that is chrisandreggie.podbean.com. But that's where we'll leave it for today. Just one giant thank you for everyone sharing their time and listening and just hanging out on this little trip through the Dawn of X uh, landscape with your pal Chris. So thank you all so, so much. And until next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. This is Chris. Welcome to episode 81 of X-Lapsed. Uh, today we're going right back into our coverage of the Hellions book. It's been a little while, it feels like. Uh, maybe because I was looking forward to this one so much, it felt like it took forever to get here. So without any further ado, um, this is probably not going to be a terribly long discussion, because despite the fact that uh, I quite enjoy this one, it's another one of those where there just isn't a whole lot to say about it. So let's get into it here. Hellions number two. Had a September 2020 cover date. The story's called Bloodwork, written by Zeb Wells with art by Steven Segovia. Colors David Curiel, blood is VC's Corey Petit, designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits Bisa White Sabalski, cover price $3.99, and went on sale July 22nd, 2020. Now we open with one of those Hox Pox quote pages, you know, where we are mostly looking at a plain white page with a little quote in there. Uh, yeah, still feels like a waste to me. Uh, this is Nightcrawler talking about violence, and, uh, I think I've probably already spent more time, you know, trying to think of things to say about it than they actually did writing and printing the thing, so let's move on to our roll call. 
Our characters are Havoc, the Orphan Maker, Nanny, Wild Child, Empath, Grey Crow, Psylocke, and Madeline Pryor. So we open, and we're in Omaha, Nebraska. We're at the State Home for Foundlings, a.k.a. you know, Mr. Sinister's House of Horrors, a.k.a. that orphanage where Scott and Alex grew up, a.k.a. Mr. Sinister's Marauder Hatchery. You know, that place. So we've got a handful of Nebraska's finest here in order to oversee the hellion demolition of the joint. And, uh, doesn't seem like they're the most mutant-friendly bunch. Now, Psylocke leads the team up to the house and chats up an officer to inform them that, uh, hey, you know what, you're not needed here. The officer in charge gets all, you're in my county, with her, which, uh, yeah, I suppose it stands to reason that an officer might say that. Anyway, before he can actually make his point, Wildchild nearly gets into it with a canine unit. When the officer manages to noink his police dog back, Wildchild just, uh, well, he just decides to swipe at the officer himself. Right for the jugular, in fact. Uh, he misses, thankfully. Grey Crow puts Wildchild's face in the dirt long enough for the canine unit to back off. This guy wasn't scared, though. This officer, he was not scared because, get this, he knows that the mutants have this kill-no-man law, so he knew he was never in any real danger. Which is, you know, pretty cute, and also... Uh, you know, an indication that he's never at X-Force So, there's that Whatever the case The Omaha PD decides it might just be best If they left the Hellions along to do the thing And so they jam out From here, double page spread of credits Then back to comics And we're inside the orphanage And, uh, well, it's a pretty horrifying sight It's not like we're seeing, like, torture devices or anything At least, you know, that we can see But it certainly looks like a rotten place to grow up Really, really gross Suddenly, Nanny finds herself overwhelmed by the need to, well, Nanny, one of her teammates. And it ain't the orphan maker, either. Instead, she runs up to Grey Crow and proceeds to, I guess for lack of a better term, hump his leg. Uh, she's apparently attempting to nurse him, which uh, I don't know how that works that way. Now, this is something that Grey Crow is not in the mood for. Psylocke turns to Empath and tells him to knock it off, meaning that, you know, Empath was just being a tremendous a-hole again, using his powers. Now remember what Grey Crow said last issue about what he would do if Empath did any of his hoodoo. He said he would take him out if he caught even a whiff of it. Well, never let it be said that old Scalp Hunter isn't a man of his word, because in the very next panel, he blows poor Manuel's brains out. Well, there's our first death. Now, Havoc sees this all go down and suggests that, uh, you know what, maybe I'm not a perfect fit for this team, or even a good fit. Psylocke reminds him that the Quiet Council thinks that he is, and we all know how infallible the Quiet Friggin' Council is, right? Anyway, Alex gathers his wits, and they make their way into the next room, which is the Hatchery, a.k.a. Sinister's Clone Farm. Worth noting that these pods even look a little bit like the Gold Balls on Krakoa, only... You know, less organic. Off to the side, Nanny attempts to apologize to Grey Crow, which goes about as well as you might imagine. To be fair, John's pretty busy planting explosives at the moment, so there's that. Suddenly, the team hears some weird clicking or something. It's, it's a weird noise, is all I can actually tell you. Uh, they turn around and see the original Marauders all strung up by their ankles, just like we saw them at the end of the last issue. Then, more weird clicking, and then the bodies hit the floor. Before we know it, we've got a standoff between the zombified legacy marauders and the Hellions. 
takes us to an info page. And it's a little information regarding these legacy marauders. It's mostly a way of dropping their names in here so we know who we're looking at during our upcoming fight scene. And so our legacy marauders roll call is Arclight, Riptide, Harpoon, Blockbuster, Prism, and Scrambler. Back to comics, and Scalp Hunter approaches his former teammates to ask just what in the world happened to them. They then point over to their queen, and naturally they mean the Goblin Queen, Madeline Pryor. We get a page-length shot of her, which, uh, it looks like she's either trying to suck in her gut or really, really needs to go to the bathroom. Whatever the case, it's not a pleasant-looking pose. Now, Alex is shocked to see her and asks when she came back. Maddie replies that, hey, she'd been back a while, it's just that nobody really cared. From here, it's a fight scene. It's a long fight scene, but it's a fairly entertaining one at that. Notably, Nanny gets knocked over, like, right at the get-go, and spends the entire battle trying to stand herself back up. And it's actually quite a funny page. She's laying face down, so she can't even see what's going on. You really gotta see it. it it's good. It's funny. Uh, Maddie shatters her own man, Prism, which sends shards of his glassy, crystalline body all over the place, including into her very own flesh. She then sets her sights on Alex, who, like a moth to a flame, heads right on over. He goes to speak, but before he can, Maddie erases his mouth. It's pretty horrifying, but also pretty great. Now, the fight, it looks pretty evenly matched, until Arclight can trick Greycrow into letting down his guard. The Hellions are pretty much, you know, pretty much out of moves at this point. The only members left standing, or not under the Goblin Queen's spell, are Psylocke and Wildchild. And wouldn't you know it, Wildchild picks now to go one-on-one with Quinan. We close out with Kyle reaching out for his second jugular in the very same issue, which is basically the scene that we see playing out on the admittedly kind of lazy cover of this issue. And that's where we leave it. Next episode, we kick off our four-part coverage of Empire X-Men. And I'm kind of nervous about it because I have absolutely zero zero idea what empire is all about i i have my fingers crossed here i hope it's not space stuff please 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 don't be space stuff which means it's probably going to be space stuff okay if it's space stuff then please can it not be heroes versus heroes please please we'll see we'll see uh fingers crossed i have absolutely no uh knowledge of what empire is or was so this will be new this will be interesting and uh, it might be infuriating so We'll cover that next time, but now let's talk about what we learned reading Hellions number two. Right up front, I had fun with this one. Um, It felt very much like an issue number two, but in a good way, if that makes any sense. (laughs) Sometimes I'll say it feels like an issue of issue something, and it's usually a, uh, you know, damning with faint praise or an indictment. But uh, no, this is in the good way. I think this works as a second issue. Though, stop me if you've heard this one, I like this one a lot, but there really isn't all that much to say about it. What we get here is a mission and a fight scene. It's all very well done, and mostly well drawn outside of that weird, you know, Maddie Maddie spread. But at the end of the day, it's all it was. We've talked a bit about uh, the attempts at humor in these Hox, Pox, Doc, Socks books, and how it doesn't always hit the mark. It, like, rarely hits the mark. I mean, we can go back to the to the cursing old ladies. 
we can go back to a two-issue arc that ends with Brew eating an egg. Very recently, we talked about Magneto getting drunk. Doesn't always land. Here, though, I gotta say I'm loving pretty much everything having to do with Nanny. It's something that I'm actually laughing at when I'm seeing it, but I I feel kind of, like, silly for laughing at it. I feel... I kind of hate myself for laughing at it, but it really tickles me, so (laughs) what can I say? Uh... I mean, last issue, we had Sassy Sinister freaking out seeing her, like just these weird lips on a on an eggshell, to this issue scene where she's struggling to stand up. It's, it's just funny stuff, which is a really fun juxtaposition with the darker elements of this book. I mean, we've got characters here reaching for jugulars. We had a guy getting his brains blown out. We've got zombies. It's, it's funny. It's nice to have these little funny bits mixed in. It really... Uh, adds to the overall reading experience here. It just makes it a whole lot more fun. And I remember when I uh, when I started this, uh, when, I, when I saw the Hellions' first cover, and I saw that Nanny was going to be on this book, I totally rolled my eyes. And I think I talked last time we, we covered Hellions about the Alvaro books, you know, the let's put together a patchwork wacky team just because, hey, patchwork wacky team, right? There's no step two, there's no step three. It's just let's put these weirdos together. And I and I when I saw Nanny, I was like, "Oh, come on!" But uh, loving it, loving it. I'm happy to have been proven wrong. I'm I'm loving Nanny here. Think uh, she adds a whole lot to this book. Uh, we do get a mutant death here. That's something. And I'm actually working on compiling a list of our post Hox Pox mutant deaths. I figure maybe I can share those as part of our eventual 100th episode spectacular. Don't really have anything special planned for that. If anybody has any ideas for a way to make that one a little bit more special, send them along, because I'm not, I'm not good at that kind of thing. Uh, the death here was Empath, and it was rather matter-of-fact, wasn't it? Uh, Scalp Hunter told him last issue that he wouldn't hesitate, right? And, well, true to his word, he did not. <laughs> I would like to think that Grey Crow probably would have reacted this very same way, even if there were no resurrection protocols. So I can forgive the seeming gratuitousness of this scene. Insofar as this one didn't seem as, I don't know, cheap as many of our other Doc's deaths, I will say that I hope this doesn't become a trend. I don't want to see people dying every issue. We get enough of that in other books. So this one, though, I mean, considering it was Scalpunta, I don't think he cares about the resurrection protocols for the other folks. So I think he would have, you know, blown out... Poor Manuel's brains, with or without them. Uh, Alex and Maddie, that seems like a fun thread to pull. Uh, it's been a long while since I recall seeing them together, though I, you know, I might be missing an obvious recent story that featured them. I was thinking back when, uh, when I was making my notes for this episode here, trying to think the last time I saw Alex and Maddie together in you know the 616, and I really can't think of very many. Um... And, and, I mean, I have to go outside the six, uh, 616 to think of one. I'm thinking of Mutant X from uh, the turn of the century. Other than that, I can't think of even a story during my comics collecting career, which started, you know, late 80s, early 90s, that featured the two of them together. I was I came in after Inferno. Um, again, unless I'm totally spacing an obvious example. Uh, whatever the case, though, I'm, I'm interested in seeing how this plays out. I think this could be a lot of fun. Overall... Still really enjoying the series. We are only two issues in, so, you know, cautious optimism, of course. And I'm looking forward to seeing how everything shakes out. Unfortunately, I've got a little bit of bad news, because it's going to be 
something like 14 or 15 episodes till we get back here. So uh, hopefully by that time I'll still remember where we were, right? Uh, I, I guess I can always re-listen to the episode or reread the issue, I guess. But uh, like I said, we do have the four-issue Empire arc coming up, and then we have a whole bunch of other stuff before we get back to the Hellions. So hopefully this one tides us over till then. But that's basically all I got to say about Hellions number two. But before we leave, let's hop into the mailbag here. This one shouldn't take too long. We're going to start with Damien, who's talking about New Mutants number 10. Now, he says, I really have very little to say about this issue. It's a fun little mystery story which increases the tension while showing some good character bits and Flaviano's art is amazing. The ending does imply that they will solve the problem with the power of love, which is slightly troubling. Overall, though not essential, it works. And this is a short message, but one that I wanted to share here because it highlights one of the struggles I've had with this program, especially of late. Sometimes, including today, there just isn't much to say about a given issue, right? And, I mean, I've referred to this phenomenon as, like, the part four of six problem. It's really just a chapter in a wider arc, right? It doesn't offer a whole lot of meat to sink our collective tifuses into, right? Now, it's not like it's anybody's fault or anything. And honestly, it's probably a complaint that isn't even worth mentioning. It's kind of just the way comics are presented these days. But as for me and this program, I have this weird problem where I feel like, I don't know, like I'm shortchanging listeners, right? When I can't come up with something novel to say about an issue that doesn't really offer anything novel, I feel bad. You know what I mean? I mean, that might not make sense. Um... You know, maybe if some of our Dawn of X creative teams had that same horrible inborn Catholic guilt that I do, we wouldn't be getting so many, you know, meh issues. Then again, you know, these are chapters that'll work fine in collected format, which, again, is what Marvel cares about, right? I mean, the comics come and go, but the trade collections can be around forever, you know? they That's what they care about. These, you know, monthly or bi-weekly issues that we get are fairly disposable, you know? They're kind of a first draft in a lot of ways because they can make edits before they're collected. They can do whatever they want before they're collected. And uh, sometimes it shows. Um, I just feel like if you are all going to be so kind as to hit the play button on something that I recorded, that maybe I don't waste your time. <laughs> because... Uh, Unfortunately, unlike the comics, I don't have any collected edition to work toward, unfortunately. So I only get one shot at most of these books, and a lot of them, especially lately, there isn't a heck of a lot to say about them. We are in a very weird and uh, somewhat nebulous period here in the Dawn of X books here, where we do have the, uh, the COVID hiatus, which got things all out of whack, plus... We are burning off books to get to X of Tens, so maybe there's a little bit of a lame duck element to some of these books, where we're just trying to get through stories to get to where we want to be. Unfortunately for idiots like me, who dedicate several hours of their day to analyzing these books, it uh, sometimes feels like I come up short, and uh, if that is the case, I apologize. Now, as for Damien's mention of The Power of Love... I was racking my brain because we talked about this not too long ago, and it was in Major X. Because the last issue of Major X, which is to say issue number six, not issue number zero, 
it featured the major using what I referred to as the Care Bear Stare to win the day, which is so dumb, but it's also so lazy, right? Such a lazy way to do it. It's a uh, yeah, because <laughs> you could basically do anything with that, right? Anything could have come before that, and it's like, oh wait, no, 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 power of love done. Uh, as as you know by now, the Carnelia arc doesn't doesn't even go as far as to present us with the power of love ending. It's actually much quicker than that. Uh, Wildside just touches Tashi, bingo bango, all's good in the hood, and we're done. And while I'm talking about that, that was another episode that I had trouble thinking about a whole lot to say. You know, uh, maybe one of these days I'll be okay with saying this was decent, but there ain't anything else to say about it, right? I, I, I do say that, but then I try to say things anyway. Maybe one of these days I'll, I'll get over myself there. But thank you so much for writing in, Damien. And uh, even though you didn't have much to say about the issue, you facilitated me uh, having quite the conversation with myself. So thanks very much. Uh, next, Joe Crawford wrote in to give us his rankings for the Dawn of X Book 4 books, which is, you know, the Dawn of X number 4s. He ranked them 1 to 6. The best book of the number 4s to him was Marauders. Then it was X-Men. Then it was X-Force. Then it was New Mutants, followed by Excalibur, and, uh, well, of course, being rounded out by the anchor, Fallen Angels. He says, Covert missions, Bishop is the Bishop, and Gambit's a Druid. Logan is half the mutant he used to be. Magneto delivers the State of the Union while he steals the scene. Now, this caused me to go back to my notes for episode 36 of the show to find out where I ranked these books, because I can't remember. <laughs> We've read so many books since then. But uh, I actually had uh, some reason I had Excalibur in my number two spot. That's bizarre, isn't it? <laughs> must have must have been really weird there. Um, yeah, I had uh, Excalibur in the number two spot, then X-Men. Um, number one, of course, was Marauders. Four was New Mutants, five was X-Force, and six was Fallen Angels. That's interesting. I want to say that I was probably just unimpressed with a lot of them. That time out Because uh, Yeah, that's weird Yeah, because New Mutants was still on the farm X-Force was kind of grinding on me By that point Fallen Angels sucked um, And this issue of X-Men With the summit Or the, 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 the Whatever it was The summit where Magneto, Apocalypse And um, Xavier Were talking to other world powers I didn't care for that one As much as a lot of people seem to I can't really put my finger on why I didn't, but, uh, yeah, it wasn't, uh, really wasn't my cup of tea. I think it was just that the X-Men were being treated kind of villainy, and, uh, the actual villains of the book were kind of easy targets, because I believe it was, like, you know, the pompous American delegate or something like that was, like, the main bad guy focus of the issue, and it's like, eh, it seems kind of, kind of low effort, low hanging. But, yeah, it was, uh... I think that was one of those little doldrum phases, the uh, the book fours, and I mean, you know that I have that saying on this program that sometimes something feels like a part four of six, so maybe that's the reason why the number fours really didn't resonate with me quite as much as uh, they might have otherwise, you know? But uh, thank you for sharing your thoughts there, Joe, and I did get your uh, your list for the Dawn of X number five, so we will share those next episode, but I'm so happy that you're still following along, and uh you're really burning through the anthologies. Uh, from what I hear from Andrew and Belfast told me that we're actually ahead of the anthologies here on the show now. So 
I mean, there's some brand new stuff here for uh, for folks who were just following the anthologies. We're actually past that, which is a weird place to be in because I never thought we'd be ahead of anything on this show. But uh, there you go. But thanks again, Joe. Uh, we're going to wrap up with an email I got from our friend Jesse DeJong regarding a Generation X continuity list that he put together. And uh, several episodes we heard from him about a project that he'd undertaken. He was trying to create an all-inclusive continuity listing for Generation X along all continuities. So like Age of Apocalypse, uh, the Underground specials, the Gen 13 mixes, and all this sort of stuff. And I'd mentioned that I would have loved to seen it. And so he sent it over to me, and uh, damn... Damn, a lot of work went into this. It's really, really an amazing resource. Uh, Jesse managed to fit issues into the list that featured Generation X for, like, one panel. It reminds me of the way, like, the old Marvel uh, handbooks would be, and, and, and the earliest Marvel handbooks that were online, like the ones that the fans put together with the continuity listings and the order of appearances, back when you could still do that, before things went totally ape, you know? This feels a lot like that here, where we go from, like, an issue of Generation X to an issue where Generation X was featured in a panel. It's so cool. I mean, he even included a double-page spread from a Marvel swimsuit issue into the continuity, which is really, really cool. In this list, I found out that there exists a Generation X coloring book, which I never knew about. <laughs> and that's definitely something I need to track down. I'm actually going to go through the collection, my collection list and match them up with this continuity list to see if there's what I still need from it. Because up till now, I actually thought I owned everything Generation X. Uh, except for a few of the Marvel Eg- Legacy Era strain issues, which I'm still waiting to find in the 50 cent bin because I can't bring myself to pay, you know, four or five bucks each for those. Those are... I know I'm probably never going to read those unless we do a Generation X lapsed program, which I've got so many damn programs I'm trying to put together now. I don't know that it'll happen anytime soon. But if anybody would like to see this list, hit me or Jesse up. Uh, He mentions that it's still a work in progress because every so often he does happen across an appearance that he didn't know of. So this is really, really awesome stuff here. Uh, I, I love seeing this stuff. So much work went into this, and so much critical thought as to where these uh, these appearances lie. It's great. Great stuff. So thank you, Jesse, for sharing them with us here. And uh, also looking at this, I uh, realized that I'd only seen a few minutes of that Generation X made-for-TV movie or pilot or whatever the hell it was. Maybe sometime down the line, if I can figure out how to finagle it, because I'm clueless when it comes to this sort of stuff... Maybe we can set up a Generation X lapsed movie night or something, you know, somewhere down the line, if we can all set aside a time and if I can figure out how to do it. I mean, I'm not terribly tech-savvy. I'm happy that I can just upload this bits of audio, so we'll see. Maybe we can figure something out. If anybody has any information on how one would do that, especially one as uh, dense and uh, illiterate technologically as me, (laughs) I would uh, very much appreciate it. So uh, I think that's where we'll leave it here. Thanks again to Jesse for sending in that list. But uh, if anybody would like to get a hold of me, you could do so a couple different ways. You can reach me on Twitter at Ace Comics or WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes at Chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com. There's also our Xlapsed page, xlapsed.chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com. You can talk with us about all sorts of stuff at 90s X-Men on Facebook, and you can listen to whole lot of stuff with my voice on it at chrisandreggie.podbean.com 
But that is where we will leave it today. Next stop for us is Empire, for better or for worse. So buckle up, and we'll see how that goes. Uh, So one more giant thank you to everyone for hanging out today and sharing your time with me. And as always, I will uh, talk to you again real soon. See ya. Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 95 of X-Labs, where uh, we're still on our little uh, marathon of the Dawn of X Wave 2 books. Uh, we're going to be taking a look at Hellions number 3 today. This one, like uh, well, pretty much everything we've talked about of late, has an October 2020 cover date. The story is called Nothing People, written by Zeb Wells, with art by Steven Segovia. Colors, David Curiel. Letters, VCs, Ariana Marr. Designs, Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits, we got a few editors here. We got Bisa, Amaro, White, Basso, and Sabalski. So, uh, continuity is probably going to be very tight in this one. Uh, cover price, $3.99, and went on sale August 26th of 2020. Now, we open uh, with one of those quote pages that I love oh so much. Um, now... For a dude who's not even part of this series, Nightcrawler sure is approached for comment an awful lot. Uh, this is, you know, if you're unfamiliar with the uh, the quote page trope in the Dawn of X books, it is a blank page with a couple lines of text on it. And that's it. Spending a whole page on that. I'd break down, you know, the $3.99 price to tell you how much we're paying for this page, but uh, that'll only get me annoyed, so I won't. We hop over to comics, and we get the quick and dirty and uh, quite a creative retelling of Madeline Pryor's life and times. You know, she was a pilot who married Scott Summers and got pregnant with Cable. Then Jean returns circa X-Factor number one, which rendered Maddie into, quote, a nothing person in a nowhere place. Then, you know, Goblin Queen revelation, all that good stuff. We turn to Alex, who, if you remember, had his mouth sealed shut by goblin hoodoo last issue. 
Well, here he picks up a shard of glass and uh, uh, cuts his mouth open. Um, I'm really glad that the art here is more of a cartoony bent because even though this is particularly gruesome, it could have been very, 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 very bad if this was a more realistic style. Alex, with his mouth now open and bleeding, starts speaking his truth. You see, he was in love with Maddie, but she always she was always stuck on Scott, and he's sick to hell of it. This uh, really seems to turn Ms. Pryor on, and so they share a rather messy, open and bloody-mouthed kiss. Hmm. Double-page spread of credits, then our roll call. It's a big one. Havoc, The Orphan Maker, Nanny, Wild Child, Psylocke, Empath, Grey Crow, Madeline Pryor, Arclight, Riptide, Harpoon, Blockbuster, and Scrambler. Whew. Back to comics and back to our cliffhanger. Psylocke and Wild Child are going at it. Now, even wounded, Quanon is able to plunge her psychic blade through Wild Child's noggin. You know, the old through the chin, up through the top of the top of the head thing. Unfortunately, this doesn't do a whole heck of a lot. It only makes a... It only makes a wild child even more basic and primal. Back to Havoc and Maddie. Alex, he seems to be under Madeline's spell here. Uh, we see Scalp Hunter hung by his ankles in the background, and he's kind of making a racket. Alex suggests that uh, maybe Madeline just let the Marauders eat Grey Crow to shut him up. Maddie says she's saving him for herself, and because uh, the Marauders, they have to work for their own food. Which takes us over to that scene of the uh, those same marauders trying to crack open Nanny and the Orphan Maker. We learn that these marauders will always be hungry, because it's something that Maddie both cursed and gifted them with. Uh, just the never-being-satiated feeling. Uh, to prove her point, she orders Arclight to chop off and dine on her own hand. That's Arclight's own hand, and uh, she does. Maddie comments that... It's as though she, Maddie, doesn't even exist unless she's causing pain. And so, she causes pain in order to prove she exists. It's a pretty deep and and thought-provoking statement she made here. Um, And she kind of said it in passing, but I feel like it's a very, very heavy uh, line of thought. But we'll dig into that a little bit later on. Madeline then decides to let Arclight go ahead and just eat Scalp Hunter, and she and Alex walk away. We shift back over to Psylocke versus Wild Child, and they spend several mostly wordless pages fighting, until Quinnon realizes she's gonna have she's gonna have to act just as primal as Wild Child does, and so she snaps his neck. This settles Kyle down, and somehow doesn't kill nor paralyze him. Um, I'm guessing we missed the chapter of Fallen Angels where we learned that Quinnon could non-lethally break necks. From here, an info page, and it's a missive from a mutant regarding trepidation over entrusting the Hellions to Mr. Sinister and Quanon. Not sure who's writing it. Maybe it's Beast? I mean, maybe it's Nightcrawler. He's been, he's been giving his two cents in the uh, quote pages here. Maybe it's him. Whatever the case, the letter writer here is insistent that they keep an eye on Psylocke, also keeping in mind that this isn't Betsy Braddock, but a woman who was raised by a mystical ninja murder cult. Fair enough, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Back to Maddie and Alex. Maddie asks why the X-Men have built a home for all mutants, except for her, which is a valid question. She, you see, her plan here is to flood the Krakoan gateways with marauders and just overrun the island, killing everybody and anybody who gets in their way. Sort of like an all-new mutant massacre, and makes me wonder if they need directions to Rio Verde. You know, that's their... 
Yeah, never mind. Uh, now, she will do this in order to prove to everyone that she did and does exist. And I'm liking this angle quite a lot. Uh, she next says that she will throw Alex's own severed head to the feet of Cyclops, to which Alex is like, yeah, sure, that sounds great. So I guess he's fully under her control at this point. At least, I hope he is, and uh, this isn't some sort of like weird revenge fetish he's got going on. We jump over to the Legacy Marauders, who are preparing to feast on some Hellions. They stab into Orphanmaker, who spews like a, a sort of like green burning acid from his armor. Then Arclight gets to slicing and dicing on Grey Crow, and we wrap up the issue with Psylocke and a now docile wild child getting ready to enter the fray. That's where we leave it. Next episode, we wrap up our Dawn of X Wave 2 number twos with X Factor number two. Looking forward to that one quite a bit here, but let's talk about Hellions. Now, you get the feeling that they're. They're filling time here a little bit, right? Um, this is issue three. I don't know how long this uh, this arc goes before we jump to X of Tens, but this felt like we needed to we needed to fill some space. Still, a very strong issue and a surprisingly deep one at that. We got us an elephant in the room here, and uh, I think that it uh, or she was portrayed really well here. I'm quite taken with the idea that Madeline Pryor is acting out of pain. She's lashing out as she feels she's been forgotten. She's a nowhere person, right? A non-entity. And considering, well, basically her entire existence since Inferno, we can kind of see why she might feel that way. Now, I don't want to go too deep into my own philosophy or methodology regarding existentialism because... I don't know that I'm actually able to put into words how I feel about it. I'm not as erudite as I would like to be. But I really dig this idea that Maddie only feels that she exists through the pain she inflicts. Because to her, that's her proof, right? To herself and to those around her that she was here. It's sad. It's tragic, right? Uh, You look at a character like Madeline Pryor. You look into her past and her earliest appearances which Wells did a fine job incorporating into our opening pages. And when you stop and think about it, she truly is a tragic character. It's really very sad. I mean, she never asked for this life, right? And yet, it's the one she wound up getting. Now, if we were to anthropomorphize a comic book character and think about what they think is their own legacy, it's it's a pointless exercise, but it's also an interesting one. Um, think about how many characters are out there who are nothing more than footnotes. That's if they even warrant a footnote. Heck, you know, they might even be best remembered as a wizard magazine more to the month. Or a character some idiot got way too wrapped up in over at Chris's on Infinite Earths, or, or, or anywhere online, maybe. It's interesting to think about, and it's also quite relatable. Um, perhaps even a little too relatable in, in this case. Um, I mean, if you're listening to this show in real time, you'll know that we're fresh into a new year, right? And uh, with a new year comes the invitation to reflect, you know? Um, you think about the past a bit more this time of year because it's a new start, so everything is really the past, more so than usual. At least I think that way. You may think about things like legacy, Or maybe just I do. And maybe, if you let your mind wander far enough from its rational state, you'll start thinking about the impact you've had on others, if if any at all. Like, what mark have you left? Uh, For me, that's something I struggle with. I struggle with it a lot. 
which is probably one of the reasons why I pump out content with such diligence. Um, I don't know that I'm all that memorable for my wit or my insight, so I focus on something I can control in my prolificity, right? That's something I can control even without talent. (laughs) You know, I'm always there. I'm in your face. Perhaps just to prove to myself and those around me that I do and did, in fact, exist. And like I said, it's a deep subject, right? It's probably too deep for a show like this and uh, for a guy like me, but it resonated with me because, I mean, if you don't leave a mark, did you exist? You know, it's, uh, it, it's something weird to think about. Something weird to think about. Another thing I wanted to comment on from this issue is from our info page. Now, there's a line in there that I think touches on some things that are worth exploring. The fact that the X-Men need to realize that this Psylocke is not Betsy Braddock. There's something to that, and it's just like, a, just like Maddie's quandary, it's very relatable. First, I mean, a little peek behind the curtain, you don't know how many times in my notes I referred to Psylocke as, quote, Betsy. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's habit, right? Second, it's an interesting take on the concept of transference. Now, transference in the quick, dirty, and oversimplified, um, it's where you assign certain attributes to someone because they remind you of someone else. So here, assigning certain attributes to Quanon simply because she reminds us of Betsy Braddock, someone we're far more familiar with and far more trusting of, right? But this isn't Betsy. And in fact, she's little more than a stranger to our heroes. And yet, She's been entrusted as being a field leader for a team of, I mean, unhinged and, quote, inconvenient characters, right? It's interesting, and I hope that they play a little bit more with this concept. I want the Cyclopses and the Quiet Councilses to treat her as though they would Betsy, simply because of how human a behavior that that is. I want to see Quanon have to deal with that, and not in the, oh, we both like butterflies sort of way. I want to see it on a deeper level here. Does Quanon take it in a stride? Does she allow herself to be treated as a known and trusted entity for what it may afford her? Or will she keep reminding those around her that she's not the same woman that they're treating her as? I think this could lead to some very interesting scenes if they play their cards right and don't just go, oh, we both like butterflies, I hate that. You know, I I want it to be a little deeper than that. I want it to be more human. And I'm hopeful that it will. Now, other than those two points, like I said, it was a fight scene, <laughs> right? It was a, a time fill in a way. Um, an attempted feeding frenzy for the Marauders. Fair enough, you know, given the lead up, it is what it is. But this book main, it remains among my higher recommendations for the line. Uh, the art here was solid, the story was solid, and uh, for a concept that I didn't think would work all that well, Hellions has been a pleasant surprise. You know, like all the Wave 2 books, except Wolverine. Uh, that's uh, pretty much all I got to say about Hellions number 3 here. Let's hop into the mailbag before we cut out. We'll start with Damien, who's discussing X-Men number 10. He says, I think the reason the drinking humor surrounding Petra and Sway doesn't work is because the story says the three of them are drinking to forget their trauma. Alcoholism isn't funny. I didn't enjoy the scene, but at least when Magneto was drunk, he was having fun. There was a potential humor in a normally buttoned-up person letting loose during a, due to drinking, but I reiterate, alcoholism isn't funny. 
And that's a great point. That's a really good point because there can be comedy in the in the whole, you know, like somebody spiked the punch at the office Christmas party scene, right? Like the manager's drinking the uh, the spiked punch and didn't realize it. Seeing someone who's usually uptight in a looser frame of mind can be amusing, right? Simply due to the juxtaposition of the situation. But I totally agree. Self-medicating ain't funny. I'm not sure why it's being treated that way, though, or maybe I'm just reading too much into their commentary. Like, am I supposed to think that they hate that they have to drink in order to just get by? Or do I keep rolling my eyes at the fact that they're obsessed with blending margaritas like they're on some, like, lame sitcom? I mean, I don't... It's it's a weird uh, mixed message that we're getting here. It's like... It's not like, oh, man, we got to drink to forget. It's, woohoo, we have to drink to forget. I, I don't know. Uh, Damien continues. I do wonder why the three retconned amigos remember the trauma of their deaths. It seems a weird thing for Xavier to back up in Cerebro. I've never read Deadly Genesis. Was the professor with them when they died, or was he back in the mansion like in Giant Size Number 1? It's a very good question. It's been a long, long while since I read Deadly Genesis, but I want to say Xavier was at the mansion. That said, I've actually been asked to sit in on a Deadly Genesis discussion at some point in the next couple months, so I'll eventually have an actual answer for that question. But yes, the trauma is a very interesting thing to have backed up into Cerebro, which it makes me ask some questions that I don't know that we're supposed to be asking. Like, how does this work? Like, when did Xavier get backups for these characters? Even if the backup system was in place during Deadly Genesis, at the very latest that he would have been able to get backups would have been before they went to Krakoa and died, right? It just seems really nebulous. Uh... Is it just the fact that they know they died? Is that what's causing them to drink? I could see that, and and that could be a very interesting angle should they should they choose to go that way. Because even if you don't know how you died, just the knowledge that you did, that's that's some heavy stuff. I don't know if that's what we're expected to read into this, or if this is just a little sloppier than uh, than it should be. Uh, Damien continues. Anyway, I hated this story. Characters I dislike, behaving in a way I abhor, does not make for a good story. Lionel Yu draws great moon vistas, though. That's true. Uh, Lionel Yu has actually seemed to be a, a good fit here. But yeah, the story sucked. This X-Men volume, for the most part, sucks. And it's actually starting to give me that uh, Fallen Angels agita, you know, where I'm dreading having to read it. It's every time I think about stopping this show, it's after I read an issue of X-Men for the, the past three Eight, nine, and ten. It makes me realize that this uh, this little job I've given myself is not fun all the time <laughs> when I'm reading some of these things that I really would rather not. Uh, Damien wraps up with, After that, I'm desperately in need of some Merry X lapsed. I love a Christmas story, and I'm looking forward to hearing your take. And thank you. I, I know you did listen to the uh, Merry X lapsed episodes. I had a lot of fun doing those. Uh, for folks who are unaware... I took Christmas week, uh, five five days before Christmas, uh, leading up to Christmas, and just took a look at various X-Men, X-Miss stories, and I had a really good time with it. Um, it was a nice change of pace, and it also it gave me an excuse to read some uh, some stories I haven't read in a long time. So, you know me, I, I got everything has to be a multitasker, so I can't just read something for the for the fun of it. I have to actually make it into something else. So. It afforded me an opportunity to read some real fun stories. Well, four of them were fun. One of them was not. But uh, but I, I appreciate that. And if anybody is ever in need of some uh, Christmas cheer, you can 
you can dig those episodes up and, uh, and have a listen. There's also a slightly different intro music for those, so enjoy that as well. But thank you so much, Damien. Uh, next, Jesse DeJong talking about X-Force number 11. He says, I've just finished the episode on X-Force 11, and I have just a few opinions on the book. I'm not sure how much I like Multiple Man as a workforce. We have seen him on both an island for miracle drugs, in the Savage Land farming, and as an army in Empire. I miss the days where Jamie and his dupes were each living beings who had choices, not mindless drones. Are there not hundreds of thousands of mutants on Krakoa? Shouldn't they be more shouldn't they be more hands-on with the running of the only export from the island? Are they really just there to party 24-7, even during funerals? What kind of life is that? Cultures have fallen countless times in the past because the populace grew lazy and self-centered. Using Jamie as a workforce is not only lazy for the story, but also shows that the creative team is being lazy as well. Great points, great points. And I do I do wonder if the decadence of Krakoa will be addressed and may ultimately be the undoing of the mutant society. Um, I suppose if Apocalypse starts taking like fiddling lessons while Mystique plays with matches, we maybe start to worry. Um, and you're right, the Jamie workforce seems lazy on many levels. Um, it does illustrate a, uh, a level of complacency on Krakoa, which may just be the point. But from creative, it's kind of reductionist, right? It, it kind of ignores all the growth that Jamie had exhibited during the past couple of decades of storytelling. And you're right. I mean, the dupes used to actually be, like, they used to be goal-oriented. It was either early in X-Force Volume 3 or the Madrox series that preceded it. But I remember Jamie was sending his dupes out to gain knowledge, Right. It was very creative use of the character. Like you'd have one who would uh, would like join a monastery, and he would like be sitting on a mountain, just to get the knowledge of doing it. One would go to school for a certain discipline, just to get the knowledge to do it. It's you know it's a really really cool use, and it and it's like such an enviable sort of power. It's like not only is it a cool power to have in general, but just the. That level of like, oh man, think of all the stuff I could get done, you know? And uh, it's a really cool use. And it makes it all the sadder and lazier to just see, you know, field upon field of Jamie workers. It feels like something that we'd see like maybe in another dimension. Like if we were to revisit the Age of Apocalypse for the 8900th time, maybe we'd see a field full of Jamie clones, Jamie dupes doing some work. I mean, just to have a Jamie presence in the story, but... In the real Marvel Universe, I, I really don't care for it. Jesse continues, uh, The Russian nesting assassins was a cool reveal. I wondered how small they would get and how you could stop them from emerging. Maybe by freezing them? I'm sure we'll find out before they become microscopic. And yeah, this was a neat reveal, and I hope they do more with it. Because I know, I mean, for better or for worse, we're probably going to be dealing with the Russians as our big beds for a little while. So it's neat to see them playing with a take on the resurrection protocols themselves. It evens the playing field a little bit, and I suppose that's better than not. You know, it's not bad. Uh, Jesse continues, It was nice seeing the X-Men in a battle again, and not just sitting around talking. Sometimes I just want a good fight. That's true. That's true. We don't get to see them fighting all that often here. So it is cool to see, you know, just a, a nice splash page of a fight that actually leads somewhere. Jesse continues, uh, I'm guessing that someone is a fan of South Park because Quentin is Kenny. He dies practically every issue, only to be back the next. 
It's become an event in itself, and maybe I should keep track of all the ways Kid Omega has died. But the number of deaths in these books got old fast, not just from Quentin. Sage is heartless, but just dismisses Rhea's death as if taking out the trash is too far. I hope that they get a story where the five can no longer resurrect and see how casual they think of death at that time. And I think they're going to actually, they're going to have to eventually tackle a story like that, right? I mean, outside of the kitty one. Because how long can this go on? You know, countless deaths. Deaths that are treated like comedy or a simple inconvenience. It's too much. Um, What's worse is, outside of that, I'm really enjoying X-Force. It's just that... You know, like when you're when you're preparing to hear like a really annoying sound, or maybe you stub your toe and there's like two or three seconds where there's no pain yet, but you know it's coming. Like you stub your toe and you're like, "Oh, that didn't hurt," and then, "Oh, here it comes, here it comes." That's how I read X Force because there's stuff that I'm digging, but then I'm like kind of cringed at the same time because I'm waiting for Quentin to die. I'm waiting for someone else to die. I'm waiting for some. Faux, deep, philosophical garbage Um, And sometimes that'll spoil the entire experience And it very seldom fails to do so And and likely won't stop doing so anytime soon, unfortunately So, fingers crossed That maybe we'll get an issue or two Without a wacky Quentin Quire death And uh, maybe no deaths altogether Fingers crossed, right? And we are going into a crossover So maybe... Uh, who knows? We'll see. We'll see. But thank you so much for sharing your thoughts there, Jesse. We're going to wrap up with Andrew Franklin, who's talking about not only X-Force number 11, but also Excalibur number 11. He says, How'd you like that Colossus and Omega Red tussle? Well, maybe next issue. <laughs> to which I would say fingers crossed, though I don't know if they're crossed because I want to see it or I hope I don't. Uh. Andrew continues. I'm choosing to be cautiously optimistic about his inclusion in X-Force. So far, what little we've seen of Colossus I've liked, but X-Authors have a bad track record with treating him terribly. The 90s was a systematic dismantling of Peter, and it still leaves a bad taste in my mouth. I also find it odd that Peter always ends up in the X-Force book. I wasn't reading at the time, so I'm not sure if he was on the other version of the Black Ops X-Force or what, but it seems like to me seems to me that X-Editorial has for a long time, been disdainful of the gentle nature of Peter. That's why, so far, I've liked Percy's use of him. He seems like the Colossus I know, but has an interesting addition of being a skeptic to the Krakoa era. I hope we don't abandon the something's rotten with the resurrection story thread. After that scene with Domino and Peter before her death, I'd like to see him dig into what's going on. So the best I can say now is that I have a reason to be interested in where this book goes. And I agree, the Colossus and Domino scenes here have been probably the high points of the entire volume. It's just a shame that it, that, you know, they're, they're so few and far between. We've only had maybe two or three of them, but they've been so good. And you're right um, about Colossus's treatment. I can't think of a time since I actually started reading the X-Men where Colossus has been treated right. Uh, to me, you know, before I dove into the Claremont stuff... I thought Colossus was just like a really cool-looking character who was really a bore and a chore to actually read. He was just so dull, uh, always moping around some, about something. Now, I came into the X-Books just after Mikhail's introduction and banishment to the Morlock Hill of Champions, or whatever the hell it was. So Peter was kvetching about that. 
then, just a few months later, Ilyana was the first victim of the legacy virus. And so Peter had to complain about that. He ultimately turns on the X-Men, joins up with the Acolytes. He'd eventually join Excalibur, where he'd mope. Then he would rejoin the X-Men, where he'd mope. And constantly see things that reminded him of Ilyana. Like, out of the corner of his eye, all the time, he's seeing his sister. Then he'd die... And then Joss Whedon would bring him back so he could write his Peter Loves Kitty fanfic when, whenever he would get off his ass long enough to actually write an issue. So not a great track record for Peter. Um, now, the book you're thinking about, the X-Force one, uh, he would join up with either X-Force or Cable and X-Force around the time of one of the Marvel Nows. I'm not sure which one. I'm not sure which team. Uh, I do know that it was the X-Force team that incorporated a lot of yellow into their gear, whichever book it was. It wasn't great. So, you know what? Could it be that this is the best Colossus I've ever seen as an active reader of these comics? You know, not just going back to uh, dig into the Claremont archives, but as I'm an active reader, is this the best I've seen Colossus being depicted? I mean, that's a scary thought, but could very well be. Uh, Back to Andrew. Another point of interest for me was Mikhail. I have a strange fondness for Mikael. I was a big fan of that first year or so of the gold team on Candy X-Men where Mikael was introduced and then killed off. I don't know what he's been up to since showing up again around Uncanny 325 and the Storm Solo Mini, but from what I remember of him, he never really had a consistent character anyway, other than nebulous 90s energy manipulation powers and being various states of insane. He's just one of those characters that makes me perk up a bit just to see what they're going to do with him. And Mikhail is an interesting study. Um, I do have a certain fondness for him, but I think it is bred out of how he was treated during the Age of Apocalypse. Because uh, up until that point, I I could care less about the guy, but probably because he was part of that Morlock story, and I do hate me some Morlock stories. Um, But in the Age of Apocalypse, he was treated as this, like, super powerful wild card. You know, he was really, really intriguing. We would hear the horsemen talk of Mikhail. And it was just like, oh, I wonder what that's all about. And uh, I've always had a fondness for him since then. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what happens with him here. I know he's got the Cerebro Sword now, so I'm assuming that uh, he'll have something to do with uh, Exitens. Andrew continues. As disinterested in X-Force as I am, it's better than Excalibur. Oof, this book is a chore. I stopped reading issue 11 a few pages in and went back to issue 10 to make sense of where the story was. I'd completely forgotten that issue is all a Jamie Braddock side story until two-thirds of the way through, so I had to go back and read issue 9, and let me tell you, it was not worth all that effort. This book is just not interesting, and if not for Marvel Unlimited, there's no way I'd be reading this, which I guess is a good endorsement for Marvel Unlimited. The art is good, though. And yeah, Excalibur's weird in that with each successive issue, I always feel like we're starting off with a disadvantage. Like, like I missed something, like I missed an issue, or, or there was like a misprint and I'm missing the first several pages of the issue. Something. It's just very jarring in how it goes about telling its story. I've had to dig, I, I, I've mentioned it before when I read, uh, I think it was number 10, I had to dig through long boxes to pull number 9 out to make sure that I covered it. I had to dig through my, uh, my, you know, my to-be-read books and see, like, oh, man, did I skip one? <laughs> you know? And then I'm thinking, oh, man, I probably have all my numbering mixed up. I'm going to have my, my X-Labs episode numbers are going to be all screwed up from this point on. Simply because 
it feels so disjointed. It doesn't feel like one stream of consciousness, right? I gotta wonder if the collected editions read quite as PC as they do as individual issues. I know with the anthologies, you don't gotta worry about that, but if you're reading, you know, Excalibur by Teeny Howard, volume whatever, is it this weird in between issues? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Andrew wraps up with, Thankfully, the Wave 2 issues are next, and hopefully we'll all have good things to say about them. So until Betsy manifests the secondary mutation to become the literal Excalibur sword, make mine X lapsed. And you never know. Maybe she is the X of Tens, or whatever that... Is it... I, you know, I have to always look. Is it X of Swords or Sword of X? I think it's, it, it's X of Swords. Okay, it's X of Swords. But uh, you never know. Maybe we will see some uh, anthropomorphized sword action in there. Um, my DCBS order came in today, and there is a book. Yeah, there is the sword book that we'll be getting to eventually. Which, uh, I tell you what, at first blush, looks like it's going to be a slog. But we'll worry about that another day. Uh, I think that's where we'll put a pin in it for today. If anyone out there would like to get a hold of me, you could do so quite easily. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, at Ace Comics, or you can hit me up on email at 90sxmen at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com and xlaps.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can talk to us about all sorts of stuff on Facebook at group 90x... Blah, blah, 90sxmen is our group. I tell you, I goof up on these plugs every single day. But uh, you can check out the Chris and Reggie audio archives at... ChrisandReggie.podbean.com But uh, that's where we'll leave it for today. I want to thank you all so, so much for sharing your time with me today. And as always, I will talk to you all again real soon. See ya. Oh